14 ways to trim your business tech budget, the power of BI in casinos, data management security, and workforce management analytics. Those are just a few things we're going to cover in today's episode of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting and also your podcast host today. And with you today, or with me today, I should say, is uh, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm with I'm with everybody here today. Yeah, it's it's a rough start already, but we'll we'll keep rolling, see how it goes here today. <laughs> but uh, uh, thanks for being here, and thank you to the audience for joining here today. This is episode number 96, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. You can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on. Uh, today, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to get to uh, later in the show, we're going to have an interview with Kassan Kabara, who's going to be on the show from Kuwait joining us talking about business intelligence, data management, and security and digital transformation. So he'll be on the show later. And then we're also going to feature one of our top episodes or one of our top interviews of 2022 so far, which is with John Heiliger. Um, who was on the show several months ago, earlier in 2022, talking about workforce management and analytics within workforce management. So if you're uh, involved in analytics or interested in analytics and or human capital management, that'll be a great conversation uh, that you'll want to listen in on. Uh, but be before we get to our guests, though, we have a few hot topics here we were going to talk about. Kyler, you, you had a, a few hot topics in mind. What have you got in store for us here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a little sprinkle of everything today, um, but wanted to talk about the gaming industry, specifically in casinos. It's something we've highlighted before, but kind of the use of technology to combat things like cheating or improve customer experience or even bring the platform to a digital environment through things like virtual sports betting. Um, but I wanted to talk about a, a recent study, which is actually um, in in Ohio here, that's a, a state here in the United States, um, that showcased retail casinos and how they've been using business intelligence and, and kind of share that um, in order to stay ahead of a competition and make the most out of their overall business decisions. Uh, so obviously the casino industry, especially in specific states here in the United States, is very competitive um, and a small advantage can really make a, a big difference. So there's one piece that they've been using business intelligence around that I kind of wanted to talk through and get your reaction to, Eric. So sure. tracking high value customers is something they've really targeted. And how they do this is by really digging into the human behavior component of how customers gamble and how casinos can particularly offer them personalized services and bonuses that encourage them to keep coming back and create that overall reciprocal relationship. 
It also helps on preventing fraud and money laundering by tracking customer behavior and that can flag that suspicious activity. But it's a really powerful tool in understanding this customer behaves in this way. So that customer is familiar and successful with gambling. Thus, we want to kind of target them with this almost white-gloved approach. So I think it's a really interesting way of bringing human behavior and data together and creating these kind of key data points around how an actual person presents when they're gambling, not only their results, but also to showcase their comfortability, um, their overall, you know, just behavior and um, target those higher value customers, not only on the casino floor, but also in kind of the hotel industry as well. So I wanted to see if that's something you've ever heard of or utilizing more of those maybe human characteristics and psychology-based data points as opposed to just hard metrics. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that, but I'm not surprised, I suppose, just given that the casino industry is, you know, won and lost based on numbers and data. And they've, they've always been sort of a pioneer within data analytics in terms of understanding who their highest value customers are and flagging them for, you know, free stays and free meals and things of that nature, uh, just to really create that loyalty and to create that uh, return, repeat purchasing behavior, I suppose you'd call it. Um, it's interesting, though, that you know, it makes you wonder though, what, what happens if they perfect it too much, you know, do, do we start creating some society type problems with, with gambling issues and maybe too much success in, in analyzing that data and making people too successful uh, at becoming repeat loyal customers that gamble too much of their money away? I, I don't know, you know, there's an, I suppose an ethical uh, layer there that I, I know is probably not the intent of your, your question, but um, having said that, I think, you know, casinos and sports, you know, there's two areas where, they're so they've always been so data driven and so focused on data and perfecting and optimizing the data they have that it, it doesn't surprise me. That's interesting to hear that they've they've uh, really starting to or continuing to perfect that that art, if you will, and the science. Yeah. And you wonder kind of who oversees the governance of ethics when it comes to artificial intelligence. And obviously that is a huge question that we as a, you know, a global society and technology are working to answer uh, because utilizing human behavior in many different spheres, this is customer facing and revenue based, right? But think about things like a job interview. How do you look at someone's, you know, comfortability in talking about the position? Does that make them a better candidate? Those those types of different things where it's a very fine line and to your point, it's very sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear, you know, in the comments too, in the chat of, of the stream mm -hmm. on what people think of that. Is that something that is just good business sense? Is it, is there an ethical dilemma we need to be more concerned about or, or what's, what's the situation there from uh, your perspective, especially given the, the global audience here? I know in many parts of the world, gambling is still illegal and it's, and or just not accessible to, uh, the local population. So I'd be curious to hear kind of the different perspectives for people that are listening here throughout the world. Absolutely. And I was just going to do another call to action here, which is more on the lighthearted pop, pop culture side. But anyone that's seen the Ocean's Eleven series where they go in and it has, you know, George Clooney and Brad Pitt and they go in and they steal essentially from the casino. And there's this one scene in particular where um, the person on the inside is trying to pass a lie detector so he can work for the casino. And that's kind of data-based, heart rate driven. And he actually has a tack in his shoe 
that he continues to push into his foot. So his heart rate will raise and raise and raise. And this is not at all condoning. You should do that on a lie detector test, just to, to right. tell you that right now, because that's a, a Hollywood reference. But if you have seen one of the Ocean's Eleven series, I'd be curious to hear in the comments, what's your favorite? Yeah, good. I forgot about that movie. I'm glad you brought that up and, and kind of brought it all full, full circle earlier. Yeah. Yeah, Great that's cast. A, it's a good it's a good movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, kind of moving on to uh, another kind of new factor in in technology legislation in building off of that ethics conversation, um, Europe actually recently passed the um, Interoperable Europe Act. And the goal here is to deliver more efficient public services through improved cooperation between national administrations and data exchange through IT solutions. So the goal here is to make sure that um, Europeans have the access to an interconnected digital public administration, which will help accelerate, accelerate digital transformation of Europeans or Europe's public sector. So that's where it's really focused on. Uh, and this also uh, has a lot of digital targets that they're they're looking at for 2030. Um, and then also it saves a lot of costs when it comes to cross-border interoperability through uh, taxpayers' um, money. So something that we, we have known in the public sector industry to be a huge pay point, right, in going to all different places as a, a citizen and trying to get data, records, artifacts, those types of different things. And we also see that in as a, a main trend that you talk about in 2023 for that interoperability of enterprise systems. Do you think this is something that we'll continue to see as a, a call to action for the public sector specifically throughout the world? I, I don't know if it will or how quickly it might um, follow suit or other other governments might follow suit, but um, I think it makes a lot of sense given that the government tends to use so many different systems. When you look at any national or local government, there's just a lot of different systems they're using and the interoperability is a big challenge. Um, I guess I'd be curious though to know if in Europe or elsewhere or both, if there's a, a, a reach beyond the public sector to regulate some of that interoperability or, you know, if it, if that would ever extend in the public sector. Um, on the other hand, just to play devil's advocate, I also wonder if European governments and other government entities should be more focused on just how they're spending and wasting technology money. I mean, that might be a, in my opinion, a, a, it could be an argument to be made for a better place to start uh, would be to really clean up the way they're wasting money on, on some big public sector projects that aren't going well. Um, but I suppose government being what it is, is its job is to regulate and set standards and that sort of thing. And, and sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's not. So I'll be curious to see, you know, how, how it unfolds. But uh, I think it's super interesting. I hadn't heard of this act before or this movement towards interoperability within the government sector. Absolutely. I mean, I think those are all very valid points and, and our Europe-based audience. Why why do you think in the comments here that, that you, your area might be on the forefront of this public sector interoperability globally. Um, a lot of times, you know, Europe, you can get places a little easier um, than, say, here in, in the U.S. or that public transportation is really proficient and well-managed. Um, I know we've talked about on previous episodes even integrating emerging technologies into European-based public transit. So it seems to be kind of on the forefront of that public sector technology implementation. 
Um, and I, I just wonder if that, that's a cultural thing of having um, embraced technology within um, your overall day-to-day lifestyle. So definitely a very interesting study and, and something that kind of will test the legislation of requiring that. Um, and then the change management efforts of working across borders to ensure that that governance is maintained and you're able to service customers across Europe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, think, speaking of trimming the, the fat here, um, we have a, a recent study or an overall survey from the Forbes Technology Council that I wanted to take you through. And I think it's a great kind of baseline to not only today's episode, but as we go into discussing 2023 strategies and beyond for um, technology implementation and digital transformation. So I'm going to go ahead and read some of these to you. And I I want to dig into a few of them. And of course, if if you want to comment on any of the ones that I go through, um, just feel free to let me know. But um, the latter ones get more to kind of the technology meet of it. Um, so there's 14 different smart ways to trim the fat of your technology budget here. Number one is identify your most profitable and costly business segments. Number two is delete some data. Number three is optimize your infrastructure's performance. Four is outsourcing your customer service. And five is one I kind of want to stop on and get your feedback on. Number five is manage cloud costs through enterprise cloud footprints. And one of um, the the technology um, council members said that cloud will surpass non-cloud IT spending this year. However, a recent study found that enterprises actually spend 20% more on cloud than expected. Getting full visibility into enterprise cloud footprints enables companies to see and manage cloud costs effectively. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I know you have a lot of thought leadership around the the hidden costs of cloud. And um, so I want to kind of see if, if you're aligned with that for leaning out that tech budget. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because one of the trends that is maybe unintentional that goes along with the, the movement toward cloud solutions is the fact that from a technical perspective, it becomes easier to deploy the technology. So um, a lot of times what you end up seeing is you don't have as much dependency on IT to lead the charge to some sort of technical adoption. So for example, <clears throat> in the uh, sales space, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Salesforce uh, or the sales automation and CRM space, you have Salesforce who has really created an entire niche and entire market of new decision makers in the sales uh, departments of many organizations that in some cases are able to bypass IT, go straight to Salesforce and buy the Salesforce software or you know some other cloud CRM system. Uh, but but companies like Salesforce and Workday and NetSuite and others have really um, created a, almost a new market or, or new demand for their product going straight to the business uh, and really bypassing IT. Not not in all organizations. Some big organizations, you still have your your IT governance and your IT decision makers that are going to be critically involved. But the reason I bring this up is I think that in a lot of organizations, it creates this dynamic where, including with some of our clients, where you have sort of your central corporate-wide digital strategy and roadmap that may or may not involve cloud, but then you have decision makers at the local business unit or local functional level that are making their own decisions to go buy whatever software. And a lot of times without the kind of the global visibility of what's being spent. And so when we go into a lot of our clients, for example, especially our global, more complex clients, the bigger clients, 
a lot of times they don't even fully understand what systems they do and don't have. So they don't fully understand what they're spending on technology at a consolidated level. So I, I think it's a great point because um, I could see organizations wasting a lot of money on either redundant cloud licenses or um, not getting economies of scale, you know, especially for a bigger company that should be getting better economies of scale because they're making these decentralized decisions around uh, cloud technology. So I, I could see that being a real possibility or real potential cost savings for sure. Yeah, and and definitely having that awareness and understanding when considering the system in the contracting phase. You know, being like Marcus Harris, you talked about um, in a previous episode, ensuring that you really do understand the nuances of what it means to actually purchase a subscription-based software, uh, which right. is really important because um, there can be a lot of hid hidden fees layered in there, certainly. Yeah. And then... Um, number six here, I'm, I'm curious to hear from both you and the audience on this one, because this is something we've never really talked about. This um, is, is dump redundant SaaS platforms. So consolidate, duplicate, consolidate, duplicate, or underutilize software as a service platforms. And to your point, this, um, this specific stakeholder on the Forbes Technology Com uh, council, geez, I don't know why that's so hard for me to say, um, yeah, says you're likely using way too many um, SaaS-based platforms today and can perform the same functions. Find platforms that do more than one critical function and negotiate reduced long-term commitments. Look for vendors that integrate multiple functions into a single platform to cut software maintenance and costs. So this one's kind of interesting because I, I think it it plays into having a core ERP system, but then at the same time, um, just understanding what that technology audit looks like and being sure that you're not opening the door to a bunch of different disparaging platforms for a cybersecurity risk as well. So interested to hear your thoughts on this and then also the reaction from our audience in, in the comments. We'd love to hear that too. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you just said, which is, you know, the, the security risk that that entails as well as the cost redundancy and the cost duplication and lack of economies of scale and leverage, things of that nature that, that you, you enjoy from having um, maybe a more consolidated view. So I think it's a great point. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily add anything or change anything about what you said there. I think that those are good points. Absolutely. And, and I'm curious, you know, in, in the expert witness space, and then also in just the overall advisory space, do you often see organizations that may have a lot of SaaS platforms that they they weren't even aware of when it comes to when you go in and kind of do that readiness audit? Yeah, we see it a lot. Um, like I said, even with the bigger, or especially with the bigger companies and the more multinational, more diverse companies, um, it's especially common too in uh, companies that have grown through mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, parent company goes out and acquires, you know, companies A, B, and C, they don't fully understand what they're getting technologically with companies A, B, and C. So I think those are, uh, you know, those are big challenges we see pretty often. Excellent. Well, let's let's keep going down the list here. Um, uh, at Marcus Harris would like this one. Seven, review all your contracts. Um, eight is don't get emotionally invested in sunk costs. Um, and then nine is rationalize your application Estes. Um, so this one's kind of interesting. Again, um, Paul, it's Paul Dewar from ReadyWorks actually said this on the Forbes Technology 
um, counsel, and he said, by understanding the relevance of applications to business needs and actual uses, tech leaders can make just strategic decisions about support going forward, including whether to consolidate or remove. This will allow them to both reduce software license costs and resources required to support these applications. So kind of along the same lines of, of understanding um, and auditing your systems. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, number 10 is don't cut departments that directly impact revenue. Number 11 is revisit your profit loss strategy. And number 12 is a very interesting one. <laughs> and I'm going to try and say it. It says go fiddle. And it's it's P H Y G I T A L. Stay with me here because it's yeah right. Uh, I practice that word a lot. I'm not sure if I nailed it because I was really nervous to say it. Um, but <laughs> uh, but Kristen um, Salvia here of Jord um, talks about how the pande- pandemic has taught us that learning in virtual environments of your business in tandem with personal engagement has serious benefits for your company goals and bottom lines, advancement in augmented reality and reality-based technologies has made it possible to transport events such as fashion shows and retail marketplaces online, extending accessibility for customers and saving time and money. So that's, um, that's kind of what that, that word fidgetal means um, to, to actually be physically there, but not really. Uh, and we kind of talk about this with the metaverse opportunity and MTFs and, and all of those different things. Um, do you feel like this is a, a main area that could potentially be cost saving when we're talking about um, looking at lowering technology costs? Um, yeah, it could. Um, yeah, it could potentially. I hadn't thought of it. I haven't heard it framed in that way, but it sounds very interesting for sure. Yeah, I think there, again, this one has a bit of a balance in my mind um, in, you know, having some emphasis on physical human interaction, but then also having that ability to have a different revenue stream, I think is something that's that's really attractive um, for companies. And then um, 13 is start by determining who is critical to the business. And then number 14, the last one here is tighten the reins on remote employees. Um, so is there any additional ones on that list, Eric, that really stood out to you when it comes to looking at how you can optimize your technology spend and lean out any sort of fat from a tech budget? Anything kind of, any ahas besides the ones I wanted to dig into? I suppose if you, not not necessarily in terms of the legacy investments or existing in, investments in technologies, I suppose the only thing I think of or that where my mind goes is what about technologies you might be deploying or about to deploy in the future and how can you optimize that actual implementation spend? Um, it seems like a lot of the, these are focused on you know existing technologies and the cost of the technology itself, but the real cost, as many organizations have found, the real cost of those technologies is in the cost of deploying them. And that's where I, I think the real low-hanging fruit is. So... Um, and given the fact that so many organizations are going through some sort of digital transformation right now, even if it's on a small scale or an isolated scale within their organizations, um, that's a real big, to me, that that potential cost savings and optimization could dwarf, you know, the, the cost savings that, that are mentioned here for sure. But those are, those are great starts, especially for legacy technologies that you're going to continue to operate going forward. 
Absolutely. Well, definitely a, a very solid segue into our conversation with Kassan, who we know has been a CIO who um, has been was on our CIO panel for our Digital Stratosphere EMEA conference um, as well. And so I'm very excited for you to be able to kind of dig into his insight and knowledge within a long career in digital transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I'm excited to have him on the show. And I'm, I'm starting to pick up on a theme here that we're, we're going to have in this show, which is uh, really centered on data, business intelligence, analytics. I mean, that's sort of a recurring theme that you're going to hear throughout this entire episode, including what you just discussed, Kyler, with casinos and BI and, and certainly the interoperability of technologies within Europe, um, the whole interoperable European Act that's that's BI related. And later in the show, we're going to have John Heiliger uh, from Lockheed Martin, who's going to be on the show talking about workforce analytics or workforce management and analytics. And then, of course, coming up next, we'll have Ghassan Kabara, who, um, as you mentioned, is a former CIO and an advisor to CIOs uh, based out of Kuwait. Uh, he's a regular contributor and listener and participant in our in our live streams and podcasts and just our general content that we put out there. So he's, he's always adding great contributions. So we thought we might as well have him on the show because he's always making great contributions behind the scenes in the chats and whatnot. And he's a very smart guy that we've known for some time. Um, so Gassan is going to be on the show talking about business intelligence, data management, security, and continuing with that theme. And we're going to talk about these uh, really important threads within digital transformation as it relates to those three areas, uh, primarily BI and data management. We'll touch on security as well, but it's really focused on analytics and business intelligence for the most part, as well as data management. So we're going to have uh, Gassan on the show, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of our podcast every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening on, as well as YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter as well. So be sure to check us out and subscribe and listen to past episodes as well. I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Ghassan Cabarro, who's going to be on the show talking about business intelligence, data management, and security. And uh, Ghassan is someone who has been a, a presenter at our past online stratosphere events. He's a CIO advisor, 
Um, he's someone that engages very regularly in our in our podcasts and live streams. You, you may have seen his his chat questions and chat comments uh, in the live feeds as we uh, do these sorts of podcasts and, and live streams. And uh, we thought it'd be great to have him on the show and really pick his brain a little bit about a specific topic. In fact, we had trouble honing in on a topic because there's so many different things that he is passionate about and knows a lot about. But where we landed was really on business intelligence, data management, security, really focusing on the whole analytical data, BI reporting piece of things. Um, it's one of those underrated work streams within digital transformation, oftentimes an afterthought. Um, too often organizations get so focused on deploying great new tools and technologies, but they forget about the really the guts behind it, which is oftentimes the data and the BI and the reports that you get out of those systems. And really, um, organizations that are doing this right are viewing BI and data as assets that can add a lot of value and uh, doesn't show up on your balance sheet. It's not something that you necessarily have as IP or something that, that shows up on your balance sheet, but it absolutely can create a competitive advantage for organizations that do it right. So we thought we'd have Gasan on to talk about some of those threads and really how to bake these work streams or these important critical success factors into your digital transformation. So all that being said, Gasan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric, uh, for having me, first of all, on your podcast. Uh, when I woke up this morning, uh, I checked uh, the LinkedIn post, your post, and I found out I was your guest. And then I looked <laughs> at the title, and then I said to myself, my goodness, I have to catch up on the BI and governance. So uh, I've been working the last six hours, you know, recapping. But, you know, before someone does an exam, you know, and you study for it, you just tend to get a brain lock, and hopefully I won't. Anyway, uh, again... Uh, I guess it's better uh, late, late than never that you better late than never that you realize you were going to be a guest on the show here today because you're always oh, on oh. the live stream contributing, asking <laughs> yeah, questions. So you, it's probably good. You know, I, I guess I forgot to tell you that you were going to be a guest. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for rolling with it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks, Eric. OK, a bit of me, a bit uh, a bit of, about me. I, I graduated from Northeastern University, Boston, a great city. Many years ago, uh, I'm an electrical engineer and moved into I.T., I uh, worked in IT as a hardware engineer and then moved to the soft side of it. And because I like the term of systems analyst, I don't know, at that time uh, when I graduated, systems analyst was fun. Uh, it seemed to me, you know, when you used to conduct studies. So I worked in it with a company that does in-house software development. And my role was to go to clients and conduct their fact-finding exercises. Uh, and of course, we would be selling them systems. Uh, I also worked I do a lot of uh, freelance jobs in my career and where I've done audits to IT departments and reviewed and evaluated their systems. That's alongside with the jobs that I have held as being an IT manager. And uh, on the ERP side, I worked, uh, worked with uh, ERP systems from uh, releasing RFPs to implementing ERPs, Eric. And um, what I liked about it was the actually the the, the uh, you know implementing is great, but the business intelligence side that actually got me into it. And uh, because I was kind of a, a data junkie, I learned about this word data junkie a few weeks ago. Um, um, that uh, a colleague of mine told me, "Hey Gus, why don't you go and take the CISA exam? It's a certified and you know uh, um, what auditors uh, certification." And I took the CISA about 20 years ago and uh, i like data and uh, i believe data speaks to me and uh, that's why we're talking a bit today about business intelligence right well and it's such an important topic in addition to being an interest of yours it, it's becoming increasingly important in, in my opinion just because data is something that 
organizations have accumulated over decades of having yeah. different multiple system migrations and they've sort of brought a lot of that data with them for better or for worse, you know, whether it's clean or not. And now yeah. though, it seems like they're sitting on these organizations are sitting on these large, um, you know, high value commodity types of things, which is data and the information behind it. But yet a lot of organizations still haven't figured out how to really maximize the value of, of data and BI in general, but maybe just to back up, you know, why, why do you think, first of all, what is business intelligence and why do you think it's so important to digital transformations in general? Okay. Um, okay. Great question, Eric. Uh, let me start with a little story. If you're patient before I answer this question, because maybe sure. the story will say something, uh, many years ago, I was hired, uh, to, to, to come into a company and, uh, restructure their IT setup. And uh, I think it was the, the first week I was sitting in the office with the managing director and uh, someone knocks the door and uh, comes in and goes to the MD and tells him, and there's a discussion there apparently, it was the rental manager, it was a car dealership, so the rental manager wanted to see the director urgently. So there was a discussion going on, you know, while I was sitting drinking my coffee and then the, the, the guy left, the manager left. So I asked the managing director, what's this about? And he said, we just have one of our customers who, who rents fleet. Uh, apparently, he was asking for a discount. Uh, and uh, they did not give him the discount he wanted. They gave him a partial discount. So I said, oh, great. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, as I went back, I, I, I decided to do a bit of an analytics on, on this customer. And, um, and then after a week, during that time, I found out that we had lost this customer who was with the company for many years because, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't get the discount he wanted, Eric. Uh, so uh, I did the, I went and I called the MD. I said, I'd like to show you something. So I did a presentation. I called him in and I said, uh, let me just tell you something. Uh, you know, you know, when you when you conduct, uh, you, you, you know, you know, the Pareto analysis, Eric, where you have 20 percent of the 80 you know, give you 80% of something. So I told him this customer that that that, uh, that I think we lost uh, was on your top 5% out of the 6,000 customers we have. He was the top 5% in terms of revenue. How on earth could you let this guy go? Because, you know, to, to, to get people to reach that stage, it's very, it, it costs a lot. So, so he said, wow, uh, I, it wasn't explained to him in that manner. Then I said, it's not over. Also, they used to come into service and they used to bring in your cars and used to get revenue out of that. And he wanted to pick up the phone and speak to the finance manager. I said, I'm not finished. And he said, is there anything else? I said, yes. Every year we tend to defleet the cars and we get revenue from reselling the, the rental cars that are defleeted into used cars. So I, I showed him a big number in the last 10 years. And honest to goodness, Eric, he was dumbstruck. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is, Apparently, the, the rental manager, and at that time, they did not give him the information, the whole, what we can say, 360-degree view for him to make the decision. Uh, maybe he was hasty on making it. Maybe he didn't have enough time. So this brings me on to the issue of, uh, about business intelligence. Uh, if, you have, if you look at the life cycle of a decision-making, you know, like you have two days to make a decision, uh, and uh, this was valid 10 years ago. Maybe it's still valid now and maybe, you know, I hope it will improve. But a lot of time is spent on gathering the information, okay? And then you have little time to make a decision. And maybe this was the case. They did not have, you know, the, you know, especially when you're getting it from different systems and you, 
you can't press a button and get the report. You have to go back to IT and you have to, you know, get them to run reports and get them from different systems. So that's why business intelligence, okay, uh, needs to be able to be at the fingertips of those decision makers so they can get the information and make the decision at the right time. And, uh, and you know, that that's one. Uh, and of course, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, we, we used to have data warehouses, we still have them. And I think the whole objective of these data warehouses is to enable those those knowledge workers to actually uh, you know get reports or intelligence without referring uh, asking it but that story still sinks in my head it was over 20 years ago because i really honest to goodness uh, when 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 the, the the md saw the numbers although he knows the customer uh, it was he was just completely uh, dumbstruck i yeah there's there's definite value there and definite um roi if that person or in that example or story you told if they had had the right information at the right time um you know you you, you have to wonder what is the roi on that investment they could have made in, oh, in yeah. better information oh yeah yeah so so i guess and i think you've already uh somewhat answered this but when you think about a digital transformation then it's just an organization that's going through a transformation a lot of times they think about let's figure out how we can replace our old legacy systems and, and get rid of that technical debt we think about how can we be more efficient to give people tools to make them more efficient. But a lot of times business intelligence and, and the the analytics behind it isn't top of mind for organizations. But why why should it be or why why is business intelligence so important to digital transformations in general? Uh, Eric, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, um, uh, um, it's all about data, whether you have an ERP system or any system. You know, you're working with transactional data. Um, people are using these systems to operate, you know, to generate invoices and, 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 and you know, uh, to do the operational uh, functions. But at the same time, all this data is eventually used for information. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, data, when you get information, you get knowledge. And, and that's what it's all about. So uh, in a digital transformation um, a project, you need to make sure that, that let's say you're migrating from a, from a, uh, from an old system to an ERP, you make you want to make sure that your data is clean. I, I, I've seen a lot and I've heard and I've seen and been involved in a lot of cases where data was migrated to speed up the implementation and there was no thorough cleaning where the master data had suffered like you would see duplications of, of customers' data or suppliers' data. So to get into uh, an ERP system coming from an, an, a legacy, you need to make sure data is is is, is absolutely clean and you know migrated now once you're in the erp you need to now start applying you know the data governance concepts which which a lot of uh, companies i don't think they, they there is uh, they they have this uh, the the oppor the the opportunity to have a data officer but there definitely needs to be a formal procedure okay to you know uh, for the organizations as the data is being inputted after post go live otherwise you know garbage in garbage out and and we're back to the old problem where the mds can't make a decision because not only could they access the data but the data was not accurate right and 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 to add in that uh it, it, now in times of artificial intelligence you know you talk a lot about that a, a lot about this topic on your podcast and you know it's an emerging technology artificial intelligence at the end of the day is relying on the data eric 
okay? Mm -hmm. You've got the machine language chunking the data, looking at the data. So can you imagine if the data that, that this uh, automation AI is accessing is inaccurate, therefore what forecasts or what, what decisions will it make on your behalf? So data is the heart and that's the key, you know, to everything. Even as I speak to you now, our voice, our data is, is, is going somewhere out, I don't know, to the universe. Maybe if you go at the speed of light and catch up, you, you can, you know, you know, find out what you've said. <laughs> so right. so uh, it's all about the, and the internet. The internet's just one, one big data lake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're here with Kassan Gabara talking about business intelligence, data management, and security. We have a lot more to dive into, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. We're here with Kassan Kabara talking about everything related to business intelligence, data management, and security. A question I wanted to, to get to here, um, Kassan, it's it's sort of, uh, it's backing up to a really big picture sort of question, which I, but I do like, I like this question a lot, and it maybe sets the, the context for, for other discussion as we sort of get back maybe into the technicalities of, of business intelligence and data. Um, but this is from Eduardo on YouTube, and he asks, um, could you explain what's paper about enterprise culture when we talk about data and digital transformation? Uh, and the reason I, and I'm actually going to maybe reframe the question a bit, um, just to maybe clarify what I think of the question's asking. Um, but the, but I guess I want to ask about the culture. When you, when you think about the culture of data and a culture of business intelligence, a, a culture of analytics and using you know, using information that maybe you didn't have before, you know, how have you seen organizations not just put the tools in place, which is one part of the equation, but the other part of the equation is how do you build that culture that learns to make better use of business intelligence and data and analytics? What have you seen? You know, what are some of your thoughts there? All right. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, that's a tricky question, by the way. Um, uh, many years ago, um, when uh, I worked for uh, for for an organization, and we, we had a system, and we wanted to to, uh, and IT was in charge of of doing all the reporting. We wanted to offload IT and 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 put it in the hands of of the end users, which is what you know, the whole the whole uh, point of of getting a BI system. So we invested at that time in a in a, in a software that was out called Business Objects, and now it's been purchased by SAP. So. Um, uh, so I, we got business objects into, into the organization, Eric, and we created a data warehouse. And uh, it, it took a lot of maintenance to create the data warehouse and, and you know, eventually to, 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 to extract the data from the different multiple systems that we had into the warehouse. 
this was done in hope that we would give it to the end user so the end user would you know have the luxury of of actually you know running the queries in all honesty uh we suffered we suffered a lot even though they were trained uh, for some reason they would always they would always they would always come back to IT and ask them to run the queries for them and uh, so we failed from that aspect now why we failed uh, I, I i really can't remember but i think it had to do with the culture you know uh, the fact it was that the company was over 50 years old they were used to um, you know asking for it for support and for reporting and probably the average age of the end user was 40 or something you know and uh, so it it was kind of tricky to 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 get the, to to push the data uh, bi tool completely to the end users and you know they had to come back to us again and 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 another reason they would use saying you know the data is not in real time you know you need to synchronize it for us it's one week old what have you but this is the hands-on experience that i had with with a with a business you know uh intelligence uh, right. project yeah yeah so it's a i think yeah, it's just an important reminder that you don't just put the tools in place you also have to enable people to really understand what they're doing with that information and, and what they're doing with business intelligence and also you mentioned a moment ago uh data governance too um, and maybe we could just dive into that for a moment. But but as far as uh, when you when you think about, and I know we're kind of jumping all over the place because this is such a broad topic, it's hard to have a real sequential uh, conversation about this kind of stuff. But when you think about data, uh, master data management and the governance behind data, what are some of the things that you've seen work from that perspective to ensure that you're not only, let's assume that you, the data you bring over to the new system or new systems is clean, and that's a whole nother topic which we want to get to which is i mean that's usually not the case usually the data that comes over is not clean if you don't handle the data migration right but let's assume it is clean for a moment and start with data governance how do you how do you ensure that you have that master data management and data governance in place to ensure that the data stays clean and that the information you're getting out of the business intelligence tools are actually um accurate okay uh again a quick story uh, when i was evaluating an erp system uh, i remember i did a, a site visit to a customer that had the potential ERP that we wanted to, to purchase. Uh, and uh, when, I, when I got there, it was a manufacturing company. And one of the questions I asked the, the team who had just that, who had purchased the, the ERP, remember we were evaluating the ERP, so we did a, a side visit, Eric. So I, I said, why did you purchase this, this ERP? And, and uh, I, I remember the CFO, he told me, uh, he said, uh, Hassan, we found that there's a feature in the CRP whereby uh, uh, the, the user can create the parts master data on the fly. And it speeds up the process of having to create the master, you know, parts catalog. And I said, that was your main reason? He said, yes. I said, oh, okay. Uh, and then, you know, we continued. Now, I wanted to follow up with him to find out what happened. And maybe a year down the line, I did give him a call and I said, remember, we came to your, to your office, we evaluated the system, how's it going with the ERP and your master data? And he just shook his head, okay? Uh, uh, he told me, Hassan, we were having problems with, with the part uh, catalog. A lot of users are creating non-parts. So what he thought was a good feature in the ERP and why he chose it, okay, uh, to, to speed up the process, actually backfired on him 
and created a lot of garbage into the system. Okay, so again, uh, that's why I believe in uh, uh, you know having master data controls and procedures in place because at the end of the day, the parts catalog or the customer names or the suppliers details, there has to be a formal procedure and that's got to do with data governance. And it's a big topic, this data go governance, uh, Eric, but at the end of the day, um, I think uh, for it to be successful, you know, the, the, there has to be ownership by the end users. IT, uh, they're not the owners of the data. They're only the custodians of the data. There has to be transparency. Uh, there has to be buy-in by the end users and trust. And uh, you've got to standardize the procedures and processes. This is very important. As you know, as we embark on an ERP, it's very important to, to address this governance, who's responsible for what, and actually add the roles and responsibilities of those people responsible to, to, to input the master data and add this to their job description as well, because this is for them now and for their replacement. The new user who comes in needs to know that this is he's going to be accountable if, you know, he, he gives you a wrong parts master or, or you know, a wrong customer number or, or what have you. So it, yeah. it, it's 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 a very important topic, data governance, and it's really big, and and you know again, it starts with garbage in and garbage out. We keep saying, and yeah. and I think you need to have continuous audit. I as an auditor myself, I used to conduct audits, and uh, and and I used to come up with a lot of discrepancies, and always used to try and raise red flags. But there has to be a, a, a subdivision that, or, or or a person, maybe call him the data officer or what have you to continuously go inside and look at master data, you know, take it out, you know, look at it from different angles, uh, conduct a few pivots here and there and and, and, and make presentations. Uh, I think for the first year of the ERP implementation, saying doing this once every month is not too much, Eric. Right. Otherwise, it will just accumulate on you and then, you know, it'll be too late and the people will go. And then when you tell them, come, let's fix the data, because I've, I've heard stories where companies who wanted to build a data warehouse have spent over a year and a half to clean the data because they were getting bad results. And there's a lot of those stored case studies online. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and it seems like in today's day and age, the trends toward agile deployments and decentralized decision-making and flexibility and enterprise technologies, those are all generally viewed as positives in the space. But I, I do see that as a potential problem when it comes to data management because they kind of run counter to you know, a more structured, centralized, standardized way of of protecting this asset, which is data. Um, you know, if, and just maybe back up for a moment and just think through how, you know, the average person might corrupt data or might unintentionally create problems. I mean, there's a, there's a thousand different ways that any organization might experience someone going in and changing a, a product master or a customer master or entering a transaction wrong, you know, they just aren't trained properly on how to enter a transaction. So therefore the data isn't accurate. So there's all these yeah. thousands or millions of different touch points through an organization that can have the potential to corrupt and undermine data integrity. If you don't have these, these processes and audits in place, is that something you've seen in your, your career? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You've touched on an important point here. Uh, you know, always in an organization, you've got uh, two types of flows. Uh, actually, there's there's three flows in the supply chain, but one flow is is how the logical data is flowing in the system, and then the physical flow of how the physical you know entities are flowing. And uh, 
sometimes I have I have seen uh, where where sometimes you know like if you're issuing a part into a service to install this part on a car, I have seen cases where the part has been installed, the car has left the service center, and still the part has not been issued <laughs> from the right. parts inventory to the service to the job card to the to the invoices. So there's always the physical flow tends to be faster than the logical flow. And and this tells you a lot. This tells you maybe uh, uh, the, the lack of understanding of, 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 you know, how to extract the data. The users could not be trained well. Or maybe there are too many controls in place, you know, that are prohibiting the user to actually feed the information. But at the end of the day, the customer needs his vehicle and, and you know, we need to deliver it to him. So the, I always used to see a, a bucket full of, a you know, backlog of of of, of uh, invoices or you know uh, cards that need to be fed into the system and uh it, it does happen yeah the objective is to to make both these flows work in harmony and in, and in sync together otherwise if one of them is leading and normally it's the physical then then you have a problem with the process you need to review it yeah and it I, it gets back to the question about culture you know how you create that culture of of data management and business intelligence it's it's sort of like that question or that that thread because it's it's not something that you can set aside as its own separate work stream you know a lot of times people view data management as a a technical thing that's over here on the side and the techies are going to handle that they're going to they're going to oh. cleanse the data they're going to migrate it they're going to map it but the reality is is everyone's touching and contributing to the data integrity or lack thereof and everyone's yeah contributing to the data integrity and the use of business intelligence and the ability to think like a, a, a smart organization that has access to that data. So, you know, day-to-day -day processes and sub-processes and day-to-day -day decisions and things that people do in the system is, in many cases, unintentionally uh, affecting or impacting the, the quality of the data. Um, you touched, uh, Eric, um, I think what I touched a bit on the job descriptions, um, yes, a, a lot of, uh, any, the moment you talk technology, the end users then the casual end users tend to throw everything at IT. Uh, I think uh, one of the, the 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 mistakes that we have made is, first of all, uh, digital transformation project is not an IT project, and we all know that. But uh, to 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 make it a people project, uh, the job description of all the end users that are using the ERP need to be changed and and and. These need to be shared with, with the with the end users because if you don't put that on their JD, and you know you may implement an ERP as they're working, their JD said one two three four, but now they've got additional work on the ERP that has to go into the JD and the HR have to feed it and this has to come back. And I think the more we add um, the the roles and uh, uh, of these users that have a key role in master data, the power users. The more we add their roles in their job description, the more you will uh, uh, minimize the risk of of having wrong data entry or people not understanding what roles they are, and you know you can hold them accountable. So it's really a people thing because you know we can train someone and then he'll go away and say, hey, it's not part of my job, uh, you know, to do this. Let IT clean the data. Then IT will come and say, hey, we're the data custodians, man. You know, it's not our job. And then, you know, right. you have meetings and then you're fighting. Then if you call a third party, then it's a disaster. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, exactly. Too many, you get you get a lot of cooks in the kitchen at that point. Everyone's kind of pointing fingers at each other, not not knowing who's really responsible for the the data integrity here. Yeah, especially uh, now in, in times of uh, um, artificial intelligence, we, we we go we go back on that, uh, and uh, uh, because that that needs a good sound clear data, you know, and data in the forms of structured data, whether it's in an ERP or on emails that is unstructured or even video data, or even some companies actually keep recordings of, of the, the discussions they have online, they convert that into, into data. So data is everywhere in the organization. So, so how you, uh, you can make use out of that, that's a big ch challenge. And the reason I'm saying that, because I just finished a course called Google Data Analytics uh, a couple of months ago, I got bored, I wanted to refresh myself. It was an interesting course. And, 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 and takes you from the whole life cycle, uh, you know, of, of, of how to look at data and the tools to use. And, you know, and maybe that's what someone who wants to get into this field should, should, should look into. But uh, there's a lot of cleaning that is involved and a lot of bias that is involved if, right. you know, if, if, if you don't sit and filter that out. Right. Now, now you just touched on a question here from the audience. This is from Kyler our podcast host here on LinkedIn. And she asked a really good question. And the, and the reason I wanted to bring this up in the context of what you just said is you were talking about recorded phone conversations, like a customer service rep whose uh, phone calls might be recorded and stored somewhere. And that's actual data that can be used in some way. Um, but it brings up the question in my mind um, that that's consistent with what Kyler is asking here, which is what are your thoughts on data lakes and interoperability? In particular, I want to focus on data lakes, the data lake part of this. But um, she asks, is that the future of master data management? So let's maybe back up a little bit and just talk about a data lake in general. What is a data lake and how is that different from like a data warehouse within the world of data management? Uh, that, that, that's a good question, Kyler. Thank you. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't know the difference, but, but you know, I would look at the Internet as one big data lake, the Internet, where right. you don't need bait to actually take data. You know, you can throw your hook into this internet, the big data lake of internet and take information. I'm not talking about the bad information, but I have not worked and done a lot of uh, research on data lakes. Uh, so forgive me if I can't answer that. But sure. um, but de but definitely, uh, you know, it, it, it could be um, if let me let me guess here, maybe it's a bunch of data, you know, uh, a farm of data warehouses all together, you know, maybe forming a lake. I don't know, maybe. And uh, where definitely the master data, uh, you know, is, is, has to be clean and has to be uh, reliable uh, because, you know, you're, you're, you're digging the information from, from this lake in order to make a decision. And right. uh, if, you, if you get the wrong information, you're going to make a bad decision. And at the end of the day, although the accountants say cash is king, information is king in, in, in this day and age. Right. And I think a, a way to think about it, too, is, is um, you know, data lake is a way to capture structured and unstructured data. So you have, you know, historically, when you think of data, I think we typically think of things like what some of the things that we've talked about so far, like a product master. It's a numeric or a, a quantitative value that's assigned. that's very easy to search. It's very structured. Um, you have a customer ID or a customer master. You have a transaction like uh, Gassan bought product a b and c that's that's quantitative structured data that's very clear and easy to relatively easy to compile and aggregate but data lake would be something that's less structured like uh, 
you mentioned uh, customer service rep phone calls that's recorded and stored somewhere. That's not really structured. It's not something you can search, you know, that has a quantitative value or anything like that. So there's, there's meaning to it if you can capture it and aggregate it. Another example would be social media. You know, a lot of organizations will look at social media and try and capture the information of what people are saying about their products or what the feedback is from customers within the, the public eye. That's not your t- traditional structured data, but a data lake c- could capture that information and give you a tool to sort of analyze and aggregate it. And then you start getting into things like artificial intelligence, machine learning that can, that can start to learn what the patterns are within that data. So that's really what data lake is. Um, you know, is, is the use of that or the addition of that unstructured um, data as well as the structured. That, yeah, thanks for the insight, Eric. That was a great clarification for me. Well, as long as the data, the lake isn't frozen, and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and data flows because, you know, data needs, you know, the big data concept where it's got the three V's. What is it? Velocity and variety. And I forgot the third one. And uh, and uh, absolutely, unstructured data is is this biggest cons- con- uh, concern. How do organizations extract, you know, this little percentage of meaningful data from this data lake that makes sense for them to to, to make any informed decision? And I think that's where AI in, is going to come in into the picture. Um, I, I yet have to see, uh, you know, uh, people who analyze stock market trends for someone to come and say you know, this stock is going to go up, purchase it. Because if anyone has discovered this magic formula, then, well, if I have discovered it, I would not sell it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If I can predict the next stock, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but so be, be wary from these people who say, I can predict your, you know, your next stock market. And this is a great tool for for you because AI uses historic data. There's a lot of chaos theory in the future that no one can predict. And the probability of that, that's, that's but that's another story, right? Might be a whole nother topic for another yeah. uh, a podcast interview for sure. We're here with Kassan Gabara talking about business intelligence, data management, and security. We have a lot more to dive into, but first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever changing landscape of digital transformation? then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. We're here with Ghassan Kabara talking about everything related to business intelligence, data management, and security. Now, here's a question from Patricia on LinkedIn, and I, I love this question because it's it's given me an excuse to tie this all back to change management, to organizational change management, and I'm, I was just dying for a reason to do so, and Patricia just gave me a gave me an easy out here. And her question is, I'm hearing something interesting, all in an organization are responsible 
for data, and this should be clear in job descriptions. Um, and I think that's a really astute point or, or a very uh, good point as far as um, just the recognition that in order for this all to work, all the stuff we're talking about, data management and business intelligence and analytics and all that good stuff, we have to have everyone in the organization aligned and focused on it. It can't just be an IT thing like you you mentioned, Gazan. It has to be something that is baked into job roles, expectations, training, uh, the process definition, all that stuff. And that's something that oftentimes gets overlooked because we get so myopically focused on just deploying the tools without thinking about how are we going to use those tools and make sure that we're not undermining the value of the data and the BI that's that's behind it. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let me back up maybe even further in the, um, you know, we've talked a lot about how processes can impact BI and data and, and how, um, you know, the master data governance and master data management is so important once you have the data in place. But let's back up even more and think about an organization that's just trying to get onto a new system and they realize that their their data is, cor- is corrupt or it, maybe not corrupt, but um, it's not accurate. You know, over the years, it's, it's, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts because so many people have touched and corrupted the data or done something wrong in a transaction that has, you know, created dirty data. How, what are some of the high-level best practices that organizations can follow to start to migrate their data, to cleanse and migrate their data in a way that, that purifies you know, some of the, those problems that's been created in the data over the years? Uh, okay, sometimes um, this has to do with data migration. You know, it, it's, it's important that, that we get clean data into the ERP before we go live. Otherwise, as you said, once it's in the ERP, everyone's focused on, on, on using the system and no one, no one will take responsibility ownership to clean the data because, you know, that was a problem that was, uh, you know, foreseen earlier on. So uh, I think uh, data migration uh, uh, for ERP, it should be a project that, that should be given the attention it deserves. Okay. And uh, this should be discussed earlier on early, really earlier on in the erp and a dedicated team should be working on it and uh, because at the end of the day wherever you're getting the data it, it, it's easy for a company that has no data to to start from scratch on the erp versus a company that's got data in different systems on excels or other legacy systems to actually take the data and 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 bring it into the erp because what, what needs to be done here is you need to do have lots of iterations of data cleansing exercises okay before you decide this is going to be the cutoff to move into the into into the ERP and uh, that you will find a lot of resistance in, in this exercise Eric uh, wh- wh- you know because people are doing the day jobs and some of them are working on the ERP projects and now you're coming also telling them we need you to focus a lot on the data on the cleansing of the data and uh, you know, if you find a duplication or what have you, which one should I take in? Which one should I delete? So there's a lot of back and forth going on. So I believe, uh, in all honesty, I would say a data migration project uh, or a data cleansing project should be done way before you start an ERP. Try and clean it in the legacy system if possible. Mm. Okay. Because once you've done 60% or 70% of that on the legacy system, then you've got 30% to worry about when you migrate. But if you're going to wait till the big bang and, and add it as a two week or three week project, you know, pre ERP live, then believe me, due to the pressure that everyone is working on to meet the deadline of ERP, you'll have some people ignore 
ignore um, uh, this this issue. And let me give you an example. This is three examples that have happened due to this mishap. You know, when, when you have uh, in, in finance, you have in the general ledger, you have a control account and a control account in the general ledger controls the, the values of, of all the transactions in the subsidiary ledgers. They should match. So in a GL, you may have a, a receivables control account that should match all the receivables. Now, I have come within three different projects when we have migrated data or have been involved to come and audit. I have noticed that the control account does not match the subsidiary ledgers. So something is wrong here. So then you have to work on a project and audit and analyze to find out what invoice is not in there, you know, what happened. And I've seen this three times in the last 15 years, believe it or not, due, due to this fact that data was not cleansed. Right. And that's hitting the that's hitting the balance sheet. Yeah, yeah. And it, there's a direct financial impact in, there. And and that's, you know, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, the, the high-value, low-hanging fruit when it comes to data. You also have all the other um, secondary or, or uh, other processes and impacts to data that aren't necessarily directly financially related, but they can certainly impact and undermine your your ability to make make good decisions. Uh, here's another question from from Kyler that that I think is really interesting, and, and it's actually one I hadn't really thought of. Um, but that is, what are some nuances of digital migration to a cloud system that organizations should consider, particularly when it relates to data. Is there anything that's unique about migrating data to the cloud when, as opposed to other, you know, on-premise systems and things of that nature? Uh, <laughs> Kyler, that's funny. Um, uh, I've only worked with one cloud system. Uh, one of the biggest nuisances I had was I could not migrate the data online in time to bring it to the cloud. I had to actually put the, 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 the database in a, in a in a tape and a DHL it to Amazon <laughs> for them to upload it to the cloud because the the internet bandwidth at that time it would take two three days for us to migrate the 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 gigabytes or terabytes that we had so th that's one of the problems it's 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 putting the data on the cloud you know as you you're moving to the cloud so uh, unless you you really have great speed and uh, you know, you can figure out how to segment your data, then, then you know, just go to the data center and give them the, the tape and let them bring it into the system. Uh, otherwise, um, uh, I can't see anything, uh, any other nuisance other than that. Um, uh, but once it's on the cloud, then, then, you know, your backing up procedures is on the cloud. Again, if you decide to bring something back down to premise as a backup, that's going to cause you another problem. Once you're on the cloud, you're on the cloud with your data and good luck. <laughs> right. Well, and that, that actually leads to another question, which I don't, I don't have a good answer for this. So I, I won't blame you if you don't either, Gazan, and, and uh, maybe the audience does if you, if you or I can't answer this question. But I, I do wonder more recently in recent years, what happens when uh, I'm already in the cloud? Let's say I already figured that stuff out. I figured out how to get my data into the cloud. I'm on a on a um, a cloud or a SaaS based ERP system. Let's just say, and ten years from now, I decide, you know what? I've outgrown the system now. I want to move to another cloud system. How hard is it for me to get the data out of the cloud system that I'm using now and into another cloud system? It, in other words, is that switching cost or that barrier to moving data, is that going to be higher than it was when I was on-prem and I could just, you know, I had, I owned the software, so I, it was easier for me to get the data in and out of there. 
Do you think that sure. will be an issue in the future or what, what are your thoughts there? No, I, I think it won't be. I don't think it will be more difficult than taking it from premise to the cloud because now I'm just thinking, uh, you know, in a physical domain where the, where I'm on the cloud, I'm at the same level. Here I have a cloud system. Here I have another cloud system. Of course, we know they're all on planet Earth and nothing is flying above us. Uh, but the not thing yet. is, I think, uh, yeah, not yet. Um, but I but I think is these cloud service providers uh, tend to have, you know, open doors. You know, you can call them APIs or connectivities between each other to allow for such data migration activities. And as long as you can find um you know good highways on the on on the internet to transfer you know some of them may have dedicated vpns to transfer the data and what have you i think it would be easier what i'm trying to say than from premise to the cloud than moving of course the only problem with that is if you think you've taken your data from your old provider he you ain't he ain't gonna get rid of it if, if he says he has don't believe him he's still got your data in some backup somewhere okay uh, it, it's there forever. So, uh, so that's the problem with data. And then you can make copies of it. And as you make a copy, it doesn't get worse. The same copy is equally the same as the first copy. It's you know, it's not like uh, you know a photocopy of a photocopy. Eventually, it, it you know right. the quality disappears. So once you've got data on a cloud, but definitely, I was reading an article the other day, and and some companies were trying trying to say, should I go multi-cloud? or stay in one cloud and they were talking about the same topic what you're talking about and 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 the challenges right now it you you sort of triggered another thread something really important we haven't talked about so far which actually was uh something you said Gasan but also a comment here from Ryan who is part of the third stage team and he posted a an article that we posted on the third stage site um that's called is my company's data safe in the cloud um and that there's a link to that in the in the chat if you want to see that article but it, but it begs the question of security um you know and this is a this is a, this is a topic we could spend the whole hour just on this one topic but maybe just at a summary level what would you say some of the security considerations are when it comes to data that we should be aware of wow wow that's a, that is an interesting topic i remember back in the days when the internet came and we had good bandwidth i told the owner of a company let's move to the cloud and he said, no, Gus, I want my server next to me. I don't trust those cloud providers. This was about 12 years ago. Uh, I said, OK, I guess you have a point. So you know that's why they refuse to go to premise. But when it comes to data security on the cloud or on premise, Eric, we want to talk about cyber attacks here. They're on the rise currently, OK? And as we become more digital, OK, uh, we, we're accumulating more data. Okay, we are accumulating data. It's at an unbelievable rate, and this this data becomes attractive to the cyber criminals. Okay, who who want to steal the data and hold us for ransom. All right, and um, what, what's what's annoying? We worry about data breaches and how to protect ourselves. Okay, uh, from the um, from the bad guys, the bad actors. Yet we fail. Uh, let me put it in another way. There's no framework so far that says your data should be fully encrypted mm. okay you've got password encryption you've got uh, you know some some other type but if you if i go to your database right now i can take the data and everything is open so what's ironic is that the hackers that attack your data whether on the cloud or on premise they encrypt it and then they hold you for ransom to give you the decryption key when it should be the other way around 
Right. You should have your data encrypted and prevent the hackers from encrypting it further. And I think that's that's what's lacking in, in, in these security standards. They're probably going to shoot me for this, but that's what's lacking in, in all these ISOs of security. There's a lot of focus on technology and, and you know, but there's a little focus on the people aspect and and this issue with with uh, with you know getting data to be encrypted. Uh, I think because we've always had data in a resting place, okay, it, it's an easy target. I I I wish there would be one day where data is always on the move to make it a harder target for for hackers to reach out where it's encrypted and it's always moving, and maybe this could be the the introduction of the big blockchain data. <laughs> concept but you know as long as your data is in a in a in a, in a, in a on, on a server you've got these these malicious actors aiming to get to your data and they find the vulnerability they exploit it and they've taken your data out although you may back to the question sorry i didn't answer it in a way although on the cloud you may think your data is safer and the providers will tell you it's safe and etc and they have the tools just recently you know there's been a lot of uh, ransom where on Amazon's data warehouse, uh, the Red River one, or what, what I think that's what it was called. And so you still need to continue with with old hardening the systems and what have you to protect the data. And then who you're going to blame, Eric? Okay, uh, you know you're getting cyber insurances these days saying they will insure you, but they're not going to negotiate. They won't get your data back. They may be paying the fee, but once the data's out, it's with the hacker. He's not giving it back to you. Uh, even though he may decrypt it and, and he, you know, but he still got the data. And even though he may promise he's deleted it. Yeah. And, yeah. And know, it's also that, the other piece of that too, is, you know, everyone is, or not everyone, but, but in the media, you know, a lot of what we see are the big massive cyber attacks, the outside nefarious actor that hacks a system, steals the data or does some sort of ransomware um, initiative. And those those are big deals. Those are those are things definitely to be aware of. But I think what oftentimes flies under the radar that isn't as widely um, reported on or recognized is the fact that just your own employees are are a security risk. Not because they are necessarily going to try and steal your data or do something bad intentionally, but because their processes are affecting. You know, just like what we were talking about, data integrity, day to day processes impact data integrity, and day to day processes also affect data security. So, in other words, if I if I create, uh, if I introduce a third-party app into the organizational ecosystem that taps into the core central ERP system and somehow manipulates that data and uses it for something else, right there, there's a security vulnerability there because I've introduced a third-party app that now integrates with a, another system that maybe I've locked that system down and I've tightened it up and now I've introduced another risk. Or there's a business process where I take data from the core system, I download it into a spreadsheet, I manipulate it, and I slice and dice it, or I... I dump it into a BI tool because I want to get some sort of business intelligence analytics report out of it. And now all of a sudden I've got, you know, potentially data sitting on my local machine or in another app or, or whatever, you know, I've created these, these possibilities, all these endless possibilities of how data could be breached or security could be breached. Is that something you've seen as well as sort of the employee, the unintentional employee data security risks as well? There's the unintentional employee, uh, where he has not been trained enough, and there have been uh, he has not been, uh, you know, informed about the, the security policies on on how to manage the data. And again, that's part of data governance. 
but but again uh the, the thing is uh, about the internal you, you're talking about internal employees um uh, accessing data maliciously the hackers the the criminal um uh, um market for hackers these days they're actually uh, inviting those employees paying them money to give them the data okay and mm. and it's become such a big market okay and they're going to an employee saying i'll give you you know half a million dollars just put this usb on your computer network for me and you know and we'll take care of it so so they're buying those employees out and now in with with, with the introduction of the great resignation i i tend to worry worry a lot about you know mm. people can can go and buy these hackers tools for for nothing and start running them okay and this is increasing eric a lot uh, from that perspective and uh, and of course yes definitely uh the the you know um the what's it called i, I lost track of what i wanted to say here about the great resignation affecting you know the vulnerability potentially of yeah, getting yeah, because, bought. yeah. Well, you know you're going to see less criminals on the street and they're going to be sitting at home wearing the hoodies trying to utilize those scripts because you know you just press the button and you run the script and and what have you and i and i do conduct from now and then awareness training campaigns and you'd be surprised how easy you could make someone press on a malicious link you know mm. and i keep doing it and i keep getting people and i keep training them but i keep doing it because you have to think like a hacker and you know and and that's what they do they're getting very creative these days and as you said every time you introduce a new technology or even if you patch you don't patch up your 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 system or or you make a change, then IT is always uh, being seen as as the entity that is the the entry point. I mean, if I'm a hacker or what hackers come and do these days as red team tests, they first try to attack the IT and they find out if an administrator has his passwords in a spreadsheet <laughs> and, you know, to save them the hassle from going through firewalls and and, and you know, all, all the other uh, security appliances. So IT need to be very, very um, uh, vigilant. And, you know, you know, if, if, if you're saying, what is it? Practice what you preach, I think. You got to practice what you preach to the end users. So uh, again, in, in these times where there's a lot of pressure for securities and CISOs, you know, security officers, they're scratching their heads. I don't think they get enough sleep because they don't know if they're going to wake up the next day and find out if their system is still, you know, safe and sound or the data has been you know, in the deep web somewhere. So right. security is another domain. It's it's a big area. But again, the more you introduce emerging technologies, the more you're, you've got areas of vulnerabilities that you're exposing yourself, okay? And even as a the human being, okay, uh, uh, who to, you know, people don't write their passwords on notes. No, you know, hardly, you know, you tell them use a vault. And why should I use a vault, et cetera? But the day you will lose your data, or the day your iPhone is damaged, then, then, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That so, creates a, a risk there as well. All right, that's good stuff. Well, thank you again, Gasan, for being here. Really appreciate having you on the show, and uh, we're gonna debrief and cover a couple of the topics that Gasan touched on in the interview. But first, we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, 
turned to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. So be sure to check us out there. Um, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to have John Heiliger, who's going to be on the show to talk about workforce management analytics. But before we get to him, Kyler, let's talk about and debrief on some of these threads that uh, Gassan brought up in our conversation with him. What, what were some of your thoughts and observations from that interview? Well, Gassan's thesis of junk in, junk out, I think really holistically applies to all sort of master data management practices. Um, and, you know, I, I really like the fact that he he hones in on that and just showcasing that it might be the most sparkly, genius, efficient technology. However, if you don't have the data not only ready for the migration, but also a governance structure of how it will be maintained and checked, similar to what we kind of talked about with the overall AI and ethics within the casino industry, um, or with using using human behavior points, you have to ensure that the, those data metrics are monitored and there is some sort of plan around how do you ensure that your your systems are are not only operating ethically, but are, are maximizing the business value that you invest in them. Um, so I, I think that Gassan really nails kind of the logistics and the basics around what that looks like. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think a lot of times the digital transformation industry in general can get so excited about a new, a new technology, a new functionality, a new you know innovation that we forget just the basics of needing to input clean data in order to get clean results. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of times you look at these proposed project plans that software vendors put in front of their customers. And a lot of times you've got data that's almost an afterthought, like, you know, a couple of weeks before go live, we're going to start migrating the data over, we're going to cut it over or do the mass vault, the mass data load shortly before go live without really giving enough of a chance to not only do data loading and just making sure that the, the system can handle the transactional volume that's, that's happening, but also that we test the data and that we that really understand how the data maps to the new fields and to the new functionality of the software and that we've really fully vetted through that. So in other words, you don't just want to test during user acceptance testing. You don't just want to test workflows and understand how the software aligns with your technology needs and your business needs, but also how does the data fit into that as well? And too often organizations really skimp on that piece of it. So making sure that you not only have a plan to cleanse the data, map the data to the new system, but also test the data. Uh, in that user acceptance testing environment is, is super important as well. Yeah, that's a great point um, about testing and, and the importance of that. Um, and just, you know, understanding the overall 
workload that is <laughs> data management and migration, especially if you are, you know, a smaller to mid-tier organization that's trying to grow up with a lot of disparities in what you've started to build your data on and kind of having to rectify that is a, a big process. Um, and we've even seen an emergence in the niche vendor partner marketplace around data management and that specifically in helping to not only cleanse and optimize data, but to migrate it. Right. Yep. Yeah. I think, um, Gassan, as you said, is, is such a great thought leader in, in that space. Um, and I, I love the way that he can make us all laugh. <laughs> I think yes, is, is he, person. you know, gives us, a uh, a, a, a funny aspect to what digital transformation is, um, but highly recommend following him on, um, on LinkedIn specifically. And then he also does some guest blogs for us here at third stage as well. Our CIO panel, you can find on our YouTube page where we feature a lot of CIOs from the EMEA area at our digital stratosphere conference. Um, and he's featured there as well. So highly recommend engaging with him, asking him questions. He's very active in the social conversation around what is not only the modern CIO and the overall positioning of an IT department in 2023, but also understanding those human impacts, which we know sometimes that can be a bit of a unicorn role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, he is a very smart person, has a broad background, broad understanding of, of digital transformation, and uh, he's been in that CIO role, so he's got a pretty unique perspective. So it's always good to have him on the show and uh, really appreciated his his perspective here for sure. And be sure to follow him because he, he's constantly uh, not only engaged with our content, but he's constantly putting out articles and just interesting tidbits. I actually uh, read a lot of the stuff he puts out there mm -hmm. Me too. and sometimes I'll build on it or reshare it to my network and whatnot. So it, I find it extremely valuable. So again, his name is Gassan Kabara and you spell that G-H-A-S-S-A-N and Kabara, I believe is K-A-B-B-A-R-A. A, I believe, K-A-B-B-A-R-A, -A, I believe is how you spell it. So uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. That's where I follow him. He's probably active elsewhere, but that's where I, I tend to follow him the most is on LinkedIn. So great to have him on the show. Um, and speaking of thought leaders, um, we want to have an additional thought leader on that we actually had on the show in early 2022, earlier this year, um, as we roll into December here. Uh, end of 2022, we were kind of looking back at some of the best interviews and some of the most interesting interviews. And in my opinion, this is probably one of the more overlooked interviews. I don't, I don't know why. It's probably because it was partly because it was early in the year that we we first published this. Um, secondly, the podcast has gotten more popular as the year has gone on, and I feel like a lot of people may have missed this interview the first time around. So we thought it'd be worth replaying for you because it's a super interesting topic, super interesting guest. And his name is John, John Heiliger, who's the VP of Workforce Management and Analytics at Lockheed Martin, which is a big aerospace and defense company. Uh, based in the United States, a uh, very large company. And uh, he's going to talk not really even in the context of uh, aerospace and defense. Most of what we're going to talk about or what we do talk about in this interview is related to general workforce management analytics as well as human capital management sorts of things. So very relevant, whatever industry or geography you might be in. So we thought we'd play you this clip. Um, but first, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll play you the clip of John Heiliger talking about workforce management analytics. First, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Give me the sense to wonder, to wonder. 
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we are posting new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe to us and check us out there if you haven't already. And uh, we're excited to play you this clip that we first premiered on this podcast in early 2022. We're looking back at some of the best interviews of 2022 so far. And this is one of the ones that we wanted to play for you here today, which is with John Heiliger, who's a VP of Workforce Analytics or Workforce Management and, and Analytics at Lockheed Martin here in the United States, which is a big uh, aerospace and defense company based in the US where Third Stage is based. Um, and one of the uh, reasons we want to play it for you is because it's A, continuing with this thread of data analytics and business intelligence and whatnot, but but more importantly, it does it in the context of workforce management, which we don't always talk about, and that's an area that doesn't get a lot of attention, so we, we thought it'd be really interesting to replay this for you. So let's roll the clip with John Heiliger talking about workforce management and analytics. Uh, good morning, afternoon, and evening to all, all the viewers as well. Um, yeah, I work for Lockheed Martin, specifically in the space business, and I head up their workforce strategy and analytics function. So topic is very much in my wheelhouse, which Eric, I know is why you had me join. So I uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We usually try to line the guests up with the topic they know something about. So uh -huh. that's why it worked out to where uh, yeah. <laughs> this happens to be a topic you know a lot about. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually a cool topic because I think it's top of mind for a lot of organizations as they deal with, you know, the great resignation and just uh, keeping employees engaged in times of uncertainty with the, with the pandemic and everything. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into more of the people, HR, workforce management, analytics side of, of change and transformation in general. Um, but before we do that, maybe just talk a little bit about what do you do? So you're the director of, of workforce management and analytics, but what does that mean? Sort of what is your right. responsibility? Yeah. Um, so the simplest way to describe it is I'm trying to help our business forecast the skills and talent that they're going to need to deliver on their business strategy. So a lot of that obviously requires pretty heavily um, analytics, business intelligence, um, you know, insights into workforce dynamics, external market factors, those kinds of things. Um, there's a pretty significant systems component to my role and we're deploying a new um, human capital management system, um, trying to look at, at more efficient processes and how we, manage our workforce. Um, and then a small part is actually the, on the STEM side, how are we building pathways to get students more interested in considering STEM careers, even, even if you include sort of art-based STEM, which um, if we have time, can get into. So looking at those grades six through 12, 
earlier career funnels. So I look at workforce as a, a supply chain, if you will, if you apply it to business and manufacturing. So we're trying to look at it really at that early, uh, like I said, grade six, um, even through retirement. So you're building a long-term funnel of future <clears throat> capital. Right. Okay. That's pretty That's cool. Right. So it's, it's super long-term thinking then rather than super just- Super long-term. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get your head around when the business like, I got positions to fill today. How do we get them to think longer term? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Um, so what, I guess just to start in, in maybe to back up for a second, you know, a lot of our audience is here because they're involved with or interested in something related to digital transformation, business transformation, mm -hmm. change management, that sort of thing. But just to um, maybe simplify the concept of, of workforce management, what, what does that mean? And in, in because you focus on this stuff, what, what is that? How would you describe that in its <clears throat> terms? Yeah, so there's a strategic component of I need I have what right skills, right time, right place, right cost does the business need? Then there's the people that you have of you know understanding why they join, why they stay, even why they leave. So those are the so if you think of that as a high level, um, there's there's obviously the legal components of managing the workforce. There's the hearts and minds, the brand, the experiences that you want to give them. Uh, and the way in which you give them those experiences that I would include in that. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a pretty holistic view of, of HR right. and, and just mm -hmm. not even just HR. It's, it's more just people, people's engagement with the company and, and identifying right. that talent even ahead of time. That's right. What do they, do they fit into the culture? Do they, how much discretionary effort are they giving you? Uh, those kinds of things. Are you, allowing them to bring their whole selves to work. There's a lot to unpack there, but that's another other elements I would add. Yeah. Now, how has your job shifted and maybe some of the challenges of your job shifted in, in the last couple of years, you know, with, with both the pandemic and also the, the talk in the, the uh, trend of sort of that great resignation that a lot of organizations are facing where there's just a lot of people kind of rethinking their careers and maybe shifting yep. careers, quitting jobs. How, how is mm -hmm. the, how has your world changed here in the last couple of years, given that backdrop? Yeah. So a little context to what I'll share is, you know, the, the company I work for, we compete across all technology um, sectors. So the Amazons, the Facebooks, uh, we don't, we're in the aerospace and defense industry, but it, it extends much beyond that. So we, compete with banking, we compete with insurance, we compete with your social media companies. And so we are trying to compete in all of those areas. Uh, so we're, you know, we, if you think of this as sort of a battle, we're on all kinds of fronts here, trying to, um, when we think of workforce management, how are we giving them flexibility? Are we um, providing more wellness um, opportunities for them? You know, flexibility of where they work. We all know that regardless of what country you're in, working from home, working remote, uh, you know, to being considerate of um, wellness, family, all the things that they may be experiencing through this pandemic, does how far out does that continue? And does that now become the norm? Even if, or, or hopefully when the pandemic um, goes away, are those gonna still be important to your employees? Um, we believe that is, that will always be important. It just depends on what is the most important at the time. So employee wellness, um, you know, giving them the flexibility. In many cases, they want more flexibility, even if that means less pay. 
that could mean part-time work. That mean I, that means I want to work closer to my parents and therefore I want to move and maybe a lower cost of living. It may be that, you know, I need uh, my spouse and I work for the same company and, you know, we need to manage our lives accordingly and how much the companies get involved. There's pay equity and fairness. All those factors play into when you look at the great resignation. Um, and in some cases, they're calling it the great upgrade. Is mm. It's giving people an opportunity to maybe do the same work for more pay or get opportunities they never would have had before because the demand for really skills across the board are so high right now and, and will be probably for the foreseeable future. It's interesting. I hadn't heard the term, the great upgrade. You always hear the great resignation, but I, I like the positive spin on that and, and the opportunity mm -hmm. that comes with that, both for right. employees and, and the employers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Um, and just to, actually, before I keep going with, with my questions here, just a, a quick uh, recognition of, of our audience here, just looking across the platforms that we're streaming to. Um, we've got a, a, a lot of interesting locations people are from. Raphael is on YouTube from Canada. Um, we have a marketing team from Denver, um, Hasina from Algeria, um, Mario from Colombia, uh, Ronaldo from Mozambique, where he says it's hot. Um, and interestingly <clears throat> enough, it is not at all hot in Colorado where John and I are. It's, it's below zero uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So it's extremely yeah. cold right now. In fact, it's too cold. I don't, you can't really tell behind me, but it's it's almost like it's too cold to snow. It's supposed to snow, but it's, it's like it's too <laughs> cold to snow. Um, well, I like... Uh... I can't pronounce his name. Is it Gassan? This call out. This is a unique yes. day. It's it's February. It's two twenty two twenty two or twenty two two twenty two. Yeah, uh, I, my kids were telling me that this morning, and uh, I, I meant to mention that at the beginning. So thanks for bringing that up, Gassan. That yeah, uh, yeah February twenty two twenty two. That's a, a unique day. And, and then I was thinking, it's every eleven years we get that, but I guess in eleven years we won't get that. Uh, right. Three 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 thirty three. Yeah, and you've got you've got some. You know, I'm in the space business, so we know Pluto is closest to as close to earth and even in view of the u.s and parts of the northern hemisphere um not and it's been what since july 4th 1776 since that's happened so yeah very interesting day it is interesting very, very historic okay. thanks for everyone for being here and thanks for uh dropping in the chat where you're from also um Nikhil from india uh, zam from uh, india as well um, and then Ghassan, who was mentioning the 222.22, is uh, from Kuwait. So uh, lots of cool places that everyone's from. Most of them probably warmer than uh, where it is, <laughs> where we are today. And if you have questions, too, for John or myself uh, along these uh, lines or this this topic, feel free to drop it in the chat as well. Um, we'll keep an eye on that and get to your, your questions as well. You can drop it anytime mm -hmm. um, as we're talking here. But uh, what do you think? It, you you sort of started to allude to this a little bit, and uh, but I do want to ask it a little bit more directly, just to see if you have anything to add. But what are some of the biggest challenges facing organizations in workforce management in today's day and age? You mentioned the Great Resignation um, and the Great Upgrade, but what other challenges are organizations faced facing at the moment? I think companies are facing whether or not they're willing to compete for some of the compensation packages employees are getting. Uh, I think there are companies that can afford it and they're raising the bar. Uh, they're throwing equity, they're throwing cash, they're throwing all kinds of things at employees. In some cases, it may not even be pay. It may be flexibility that the company isn't willing or isn't ready to counter with. So, you know, there's companies, there was a Gartner webinar that talked about companies offering every third Friday off, or you can have every Friday afternoon off. Actually, Lockheed Martin provides every Friday off 
um, that level of flexibility and time to have balance back in people's lives. Because as they've worked from home, they might, they are now working more hours. We've done studies at our company that the folks working from home, working more hours, they might be more burnt out. Uh, we're applying, trying to apply analytics to understand burnout and flight risk. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you um, help those employees with that kind of balance? So that's a, I, I was hearing a lot of companies struggling with that. Um, imagine you're a startup and you can't pay the, the types of salaries that maybe more um, established companies, larger firms can pay. So you may have to hire less experienced folks. What kind of impact does that have on companies when they might need more experienced folks in startup environments? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the challenge culturally across countries. Um, I, I think just about every country across the globe is faced with the same resignation, the same challenges, but you might not be able to move as quickly as other companies, depending on what country you work for or work in. Um, you know, the, the being able to offboard employees is different. Um, there's obviously the, the laws attached to some countries, but I think, you know, you're pretty much faced with the similar challenges. And I'd be curious from our audience if anything I've mentioned resonates or any different challenges you might be facing that, uh, that I haven't highlighted. And I'm, yeah. I'm seeing some questions. So cue me, Eric, when you want to stop and look at those, but. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And, and good point, John, about if you do have, I'd love to hear from the audience, what are some of the challenges your organization is facing with workforce management? Anything particular that John said that resonates with you that's particularly true for you, or maybe things he didn't mention that, that you're, you're struggling with at the moment. Um, love to, love to get your feedback there. And speaking of feedback, here's a, Here's a, a question or, or comment from Gassan on LinkedIn. And he, he asked the question of a productive employee in theory means a profitable organization. In your opinion, what are the top three traits that make an employee productive? And do you have measures for these? And since you're an analytics guy, uh, maybe, maybe you've got yeah. some measures as well. <laughs> so we, I say we, my team and some others, we've started to adopt, we looked at this pretty significantly. Like how do we, What's getting our in our way of doing our best work? So to the, to the productivity question, uh, what we're finding pretty consistently is that well, number one tension is meetings. We're in too many meetings. They're unproductive. Um, we have too many people joining that don't offer value. It might just be a get a courtesy invite. So if I look at that question of you know traits of a productive employee, they spend their meeting time or their engagement time with the right people um, pretty consistently. They're, they ask the hard questions. They're willing to say no to meetings. They, you know, they manage their time pretty religiously. Uh, it, you know, their, their, their deep thinking time is sacred. The time they spent with others is sacred. So meeting productivity, I would say, is, a, is one trait. You can measure those. Microsoft Analytics has capable. We haven't, we're not doing that where I am today, but I know you can manage how much time you're spending in emails, how much time you spend in meetings, how many hours. And you get you can get weekly reports, and you can we would actually we do pretty consistent retrospectives, or we reflect each month on, you know, if we've applied a, an experiment of hey we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do meaningless weeks during the holidays, or is that helping us free up time to be more productive, more deep thinking, more innovation, those types of things. So you can look at things like less meeting time results in more innovation. There's ways to measure that. Um, we're also looking at burnout. So, uh, you know, we were, we were able to do some through surveys. We actually do 
poll surveys. We ask a question each week that relates to burnout, flight risk. And we've done our own um, analysis around what's the likelihood of folks leaving based on historical attrition statistics. Um, so you can connect all of those in a way that helps to not just identify your top most productive employees, but is that resulting in burnout? Mm. So I don't know if that helps Gasan or not, but uh, it's a good question. What about, you kind of triggered another thought there in, in your response, but you talk about um, people being stressed out, they're in too many meetings, um, burnout, not mm -hmm. enough focus time. Um, and then, it, yeah, I think there's also this dynamic of where it's it's maybe a little bit more difficult to separate your your home life from your personal life when you're, yeah, if you're working at home, at least for office workers. Um, right. but what, how do you how do you preserve a in these times? You know, with all, against this backdrop of all, of everything you're talking about, how do you preserve your culture? You know, how do you how do you address culture? Have you guys shifted in the way you've approached that given where we're at in the world? Yeah, we've tried. Uh, so I've been with where I am today, eight years, previous companies, you know, similar. We, culture has always been the, the, not the elephant in the room, but always the most toughest nut to crack, of, you know, defining what we are and what we want to be. Uh, historically, our company in this industry has been you know, very bureaucratic. We take on the culture of our customers. So if you're international, if you're in another country, still working in this defense industry, even aviation, those kinds of companies, you're probably faced with all kinds of regulation, banking, financial industry, same, same thing. How do you, how do you uh, still have to address that, but also um, give folks the opportunity, the freedom, the autonomy to make decisions, to unblock that work, to, re to look at processes that you know, require multiple approvals, those kinds of things. So um, I'll be honest, I think we've struggled with that, um, it, ha it has to start at the top. We've had great CEOs since I've been here. Um, Jim Takelet, uh, Marilyn Houston, um, have we've certainly chipping away. Little things like we don't need you know a meeting before a meeting. You know, keep your presentations to three slides. Little things like that where people would spend hours and hours and build you know dozens of slide content to prepare to share a status meeting. No more status meetings, those kinds of things, you know, again, chipping away at that culture of bureaucracy to give folks the freedom to get work done, to drive trust and autonomy down um, to the people that are closest to the work. We call it the edges of the fringes that are close to the customer. But, uh, you know, culture is one of those, you know, you have to spend time as a company defining it and then be very clear and intentional about what you want to be. And then apply some of those practices if you know if your culture is bureaucratic and you want to provide more autonomy or you know maybe uh it's too autonomous and you want to bring controls back uh, you know whatever it happens to be i think that's the most challenging yeah and and you had mentioned uh that you guys are going at lockheed martin are going through somewhat of a digital transformation of your own like a lot of organizations are um have you, do you address culture as part of your transformation or is that something that's top of mind for you guys as you think about how do we deploy new technologies? And by the way, you know, how, do, how does that affect our culture and what can we do to bend that culture? It is, it's very much a part of it. We, we put a lot of effort and resources around change management. So we follow, you know, the um, typical model of, and the, the model is escaping, it'll come to me in a second. Uh, but you apply the ad car methodology of you're looking at, you know, 
how do you get folks through that change curve of resistance, acceptance, adoption, uh, when you think of, okay, your work is going to be more automated. So let's say great examples in software development where you create a factory of code where people can draw that common code and not have to rewrite it every time. What does that do to the software engineer's job or even tracking of inventory where you're attaching RF or Bluetooth um, devices so you can track things from your mobile device or your computer without having to walk, you know, the shop floor to put, you know, sticky notes and tags on it. What does that do to that person's work? How do you get them and convince them that that work is more fulfilling when they might be have been doing it for decades? Uh, those kinds of things. Um, the other thing is uh, this might, this kind of draws to the system side of moving managers to more self-service. So our culture has been, you know, HR, some of the functions do a lot for a leader. We hold their hand, we do the work for them moving people, approving certain things to, you know, hire somebody or offboard them. How do we create systems um, and make them intuitive enough that managers can do that work themselves? So that's a big culture shift of, you know, if they do something once a year, a great example would be opening a job. And if we, uh, you know, if we train them and they forget, how do you build that system? So it's got, um, you know, there's a, platform called lock me or those types of platforms where they do tool tips and tricks when you're in the tool. So it's like it's tool training when you're in the, in the application so that every time they're in, they don't need a person to walk them through. They can do it themselves. Uh, but a culture in a way that doesn't put so much on them that they have to remember 50 things and not have time to actually manage and lead their people. Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I know that's a challenge for us is, shifting to digital transformation, applying self-service capabilities and systems that let them, uh, like they said, do that work themselves. Yeah. So it's almost like an underlying cultural theme of uh, empowerment, self-sufficiency, whatever you want to call it, to where it's, uh, you know, you're managing your own, you know, you're managing your, a lot of things that you relied on other people to do for you, like HR, right. self-service. and that that's, right. Sort of thing. that's right. Um, very interesting. Um, a couple of uh, other comments I want to hit on here. Um, one is uh, actually from Kyler, who's my podcast co-host, who's uh, listening in the background here. Um, and she said she really likes the great upgrade. Jed Hafer talked about this at our recent Stratosphere event. Check it out at stratosphere2022.com. So if you go to um, that website, which is uh, an event we just hosted a few weeks ago, uh, all about digital transformation, Jed Hafer talks about great upgrade, emotional intelligence, right. a bunch of change management stuff that's really important. Yeah. Okay, we're playing you this clip from early 2022 with John Heiliger and Lockheed Martin talking about workforce management analytics. We're going to continue the conversation when we take or when we return from a break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. 
And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a clip of John Heiliger talking about workforce management and analytics. Let's jump back to the interview. I want to hit this question here from um, Zam. I hope I pr I'm pronouncing that right, Zam, um, in India on over on LinkedIn. Um, the question is, in digital transformation like ERP implementations, we need module consultants and leads to collaborate and work together instead of working at individual verticals. Any thoughts how to create an atmosphere of working together, establishing dialogue? And <clears throat> I apologize, I have to hide the question on the screen to be able to read the rest of it here. That's okay. I can still see um, um, how to establish dialogue between various modules and teams. So I think it's, it's a collaboration question. You know, how do you, how do you create that cross-functional focus on the organization and mindset shift? Sort of like the cultural question I just asked, but a little bit more functional and focused on operations. How do you, how do you create that culture of collaboration within an organization? Or is that something you've dealt with or seen at Lockheed? Yeah, I'll, you know, we have, I've seen it. We've tried a lot of ways and I'll, I'll highlight a few. And what I struggle with is a great question, by the way. What I struggle with is what's the, there's no one way, there's no silver bullet, there's no secret sauce to it. It's, it's you give folks the opportunity in the ways. So it could be things like, okay, we're going to use Slack to collaborate and message each other or, you know, whatever technology or platform that um, companies are using or that exists. Uh, and then how do you give them the freedom to come up with ideas and apply those ideas. So we've done things like we create communities of practice. Uh, we have a new ways of working community where we talk about, you know, what are ways that we're unblocking work that we're driving decisions down closer to the, to the customer. Um, how do we make decisions? What decisions rights do we give each other? And we're sharing that. And it's turned, it started as a few folks, and has now turned in, we monitor users. I think we started off with 20 an hour. We have uh, our companies over 100,000. I think we've got close to 3,000 employees on this community, if you will. And we're just sharing practices of, have you tried this? No, try that. Um, we cross facilitate these sessions with each other. Um, and when I refer to uh, new ways of working, there's a book called Brave New Work. Um, there's another one called Humanocracy that, that tries to apply these principles and practices of unblocking work and uh, driving autonomy. So, you know, it, it could be a community of practice. It could be a platform or technology you use. It could be ways that you said empower people to connect is what I would say, but it, it differs across companies, countries. Mm -hmm. um, some folks may prefer to be in person, do that. We can't do that. Or you have to do zoom or we may prefer Slack over something else, but are you creating a way for uh, your employees to interact? Um, is it is that reinforced and driven through leadership? Um, you know, are you applying that to how your bonus structure and compensation works? 
that's one of the things I've learned is you can have a culture and you can say, we want you to behave and do this way. But if it's not reinforced through bonuses, through even compensation or how you measure commitments and objectives each year, it's really hard to drive that, that mindset shift. So I, I don't know if I answer the question that well, it, it kind of depends, but I think uh, um, getting folks to naturally create their own ways of collaborating is probably the best way I would describe it. And you hit on some really good points about, you know, when you think about how you want your culture to shift, a lot of times people think, well, the technology is just going to sort of enable that culture of collaboration or of self-service, um, whatever the case may be. But you, you also mentioned a couple of really important things in passing around. You sort of implied that organizational design, compensation structures, that sort of thing. You have to align everything around what that culture is you're trying to trying to get to a lot of times i think people think well i'll just put in the technology the self-service technology and that's gonna we're gonna create this digital mindset in our organization well Mm -hmm. you have the potential to now that you've got the tool but you haven't actually enabled that mindset until you've done the things you talk about right been the case you've seen too is just getting you that full alignment around all the everything that relates to the people's jobs and their experience of the organization It, it has i would say too companies have to define what a leader means in your organization um, historically, our company has been: if you're a good tech, if you're a good technologist, if you're a good engineer, we're going to promote you into leadership, and that's worked in some cases. Other cases, it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you expect as a leader? Do you want them to develop and have empathy for their people and develop and grow them, or do you want just managers who make sure the work gets done? There's a there's a a pretty solid line between the two: managers, leaders. What do you want your company? What is your what do you expect of leaders as a company? And then as you define it, you can apply ways to select, promote, um, what work you give them, how you employ self-service, um, what technologies you're gonna give them access to, how transparent you wanna, you wanna provide data to them. We've, uh, we've erred on the side of more transparency. So we've set up dashboards and you know, self-service analytics, if you will, so leaders can look at data, make decisions themselves. Well, my attrition's gone up over the last few months, what do I do? Or, you know, um, here's my diversity um, uh, view of my diverse, my team in terms of diversity or location or how many work virtual or in the office. So leaders can uh, approach their teams accordingly. Um, Then the next part obviously is how much information and tips and training do you give them to apply things to manage their their folks accordingly based on that data. Gotcha, interesting. Um, what, just out of curiosity, approximately what percentage of employees at Lockheed Martin are office workers or people that have the ability to potentially work from home or work remotely? Yeah, it depends. We're, we have a pretty significant uh, number of programs that require clearances, so they have to sit in a secured space. Uh, hard for them to work from home. Hmm. But it varies. I think we, were, we had... Uh, not by choice, but because of the pandemic, we had to uh, change our philosophy pretty significantly overnight. And I know a lot of companies have gone through that. We were up to maybe 30 to 40% at one point, Mm. but it varies. It depends on what part of our business, what location um, and the role typically. So, you know, we've got, like I said, significant requirements for folks to be in the office because of clearance. But um, I think we may have been, 10% 10% at one point. So we went, we took this huge swing and then maybe we've scaled back a little bit. 
Gotcha. But I don't know specific numbers. Well, and the reason I asked that is because um, something that just occurred to me is actually earlier this, uh, late last week, I had a, I had a call um, that I took from home. Uh, we have, we're back mm-hmm. in an office, but we still do sort of a hybrid. And I took the call from home and it was with a manufacturing company. And the guy um, that I was on the call with showed up in, in the, uh, the orange vest, you know, because he'd been out on the factory floor. He right. came into his office at the right. office to take this call. And, and it just, I don't know why it just now occurred to me two years into the pandemic that for a brief moment, I felt like a, um, a moment of, of like not being able to relate a, a non-relatable moment, if you will, in, in that I'm working at home. I have the flexibility and the ability to work from home, but clearly he doesn't, you know, he's a, he's a factory guy. He manages That's a right. shop floor and he, he can't work from home. So I guess my question is, and I just, I don't know why it didn't occur to me to ever ask anyone this question. I've never asked anyone this question, but what, do you think it creates any sort of a divide between those who can work from home and a lot of myself included, we all talk about working from home. Right. But I I would say an overwhelming majority of the world employees in the world do not have the option to even work from home, whether they're manufacturing and services or whatever, or high, high uh, security types of roles like at Lockheed Martin. Do you think it creates any sort of divide culturally? And if so, you know, how do you navigate that? It does create a divide. I think uh, because you'll see cases of, Oh, my job can now work from home 100%. It didn't before. I don't have to be in a high cost of living. I'm just going to move somewhere else, place I'd always want to live. Or I get a chance to go move back home, be with my, close to my parents, uh, whatever. And then you've got the others, um, like your example, that doesn't have that capability. They have to work in a shop floor. They work in a secured area, what have you. Uh, even some instances where you still got to travel, it absolutely does create a divide. I don't know if I have the answer for how you manage it other than just be very clear up front about the expectations of the role, how it might be changing, depending on whatever, what kind of environment we're in. Um, you might have to provide incentives to those who have to come in the office and see that, that not as a perk anymore. <clears throat> so you might have to apply certain, like I said, benefits, but then, you know, there's this, movement and this was captured in this Gartner webinar about well if if can I move to a lower cost of living and keep my same pay it's unfair that you're gonna you know dock my pay because I'm in a lower cost of living or someone over there is working from home I can't so can I move my job from home there's that's pretty constant and I think you're gonna have to be clear with your employees they're gonna have to make their decisions if they stay in their role um, to pursue something that has more flexibility or you incentivize them, incentivize them to stay if their role doesn't have that flexibility. Yeah. What about, what about leadership? And, um, you know, if you assume that there's more upper level management leaders within an organization that do have the flexibility from work from home, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the frontline employees, where I would argue there's probably a, a much bigger mix of people that can't work from home. How do you create that credibility, the trust, the general leadership, you know what I mean? Behind that, when you when you have this sort of, I'm working from home. You know, I'm showing up in my pajamas potentially on a on a Zoom call, and you're you're actually at the office. Mm-hmm. You had to get up and shower and drive and all that stuff. Yeah. It just, I'm trying to figure out like how you how do you reconcile that, or or is that something you guys have faced, or maybe I'm overthinking the whole thing. I don't know. I, I tend to do that at times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the same. I, I I maybe if I if maybe reframe the question, Eric. Are you asking? is do leaders have to lead differently depending on those yeah. Type of situations? Yeah, that's a better way. That was what I was trying to say. You just said it better. 
Yeah, I think you do. I mean, one thing I've learned is if your team is grounded in purpose and you have to spend time developing, what is the purpose of your team? What are the expectations? And then all of that around, you know, that, that purpose, grounding and purpose should, should drive how you operate. In other words, you know, uh, a good example for us. Okay. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time developing what, why are we here? What does success look like? Um, what would the business benefit from the work that we're doing? Those kinds of things and um, identifying our big rocks. And then we say, okay, let's go. We're all going to go out and trust each other that we're going to deliver on these things. We know each other's roles. We know how we're structured, but this is our purpose. Um, and then we trust when folks work, how they work um, to come to figure that on their own and share it with each other. So we drive psychological safety of, hey, you know, we have one employee who has family time that starts at 530 and, you know, she's on the East Coast and we hold that sacred. Uh, I, I typically don't start my workday until 730 because I have obligations in the morning and I and I actually carve out deep thinking time. We hold those times sacred knowing that we're all driving to the same purpose. We know our roles. We're going to work together and we put that trust in each other. And if it and if that doesn't happen, then maybe we're not hiring the right people. Uh, I think that's a, a a culture that a lot of companies have. Of I need to see them in their seat, working at their desk to know that they're getting work done. I think leaders have to change that perspective. Um, hire the right people, ground them in purpose, and let them go do their best work. When you treat them like rock stars, they'll actually deliver like rock stars. Mm -hmm. If you treat them and put controls over them, typically they'll they'll behave accordingly as well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. at times like this, where there's more job openings than there are willing workers, that's a, that's a big risk. I would assume you have people right. saying, yeah, I don't, I don't need to talk. I don't need to put up with this because there's a million other places I could be working right. and being treated better. Right. So, interesting. Um, so here's a, li a little bit different question that, that um, mm -hmm. just to shift gears a little bit, maybe to get more to the, the digital side of things or the system side of things. Um, but how are enterprise technologies such as human capital and HR systems and predictive analytics impacting how workforces are being managed in the 2020s? You talked earlier about the self-service um, aspect of, of it. Are there other examples you have of how HR technologies and just other enterprise technologies doesn't even need to be HR or HCM necessarily, but how, mm -hmm. how is technology affecting the way people work and the impacts on their jobs? So great example would be I love the question for many reasons. One is, I think we expect, sometimes we expect technology to solve all of our problems. Mm -hmm. If you don't first identify how the work gets done and then try to apply it within the technology, I think you probably see more failures and successes. Uh, but I would say that one of the things we're seeing from a systems perspective is uh, the platforms you're purchasing, the SAPs, the Workdays, those kind of oracles are they are do they have analytics capabilities built in so when you you're spending a lot of money and effort to implement to make sure that it has, maybe it's intuitive self-service capable all those things but does it have built-in analytics i think hr systems tend to lag other technologies when it comes to that i mean a great example might be salesforce or those kind of applications where it um it's been so the way that it, it informs the business, sales, customer behavior, those kinds of things, 
I don't know if we can apply that same and those same insights to employees yet. Um, I could be wrong. I'm still learning SAP and others, um, but I think that's a, a big factor. If you can, if you can nail that, I think you can you can be pretty successful in leveraging the capabilities of the systems. The other one is um, AI, cognitive um, assistance, uh, chatbots, those kinds of things of taking HR work and automating it. Uh, for years, decades, HR has been. Uh, you know, their their value has been based on I'm answering an employee's question. I help a leader do this kind of work versus if we could help the business achieve uh, cultural transformation, um, strategic workforce planning and less time on did I help an employee get a question answered or do I help a leader complete a task? There are technologies to do that. They're either home built uh, or internally built or you can buy things off the shelf, uh, typically service now, those kinds of things. I think they're starting to have those capabilities. But I think that applies to some of the things we said before of self-service. You also have that chatbot capability for leaders. What about the, what does that do to the employee experience? It might solve for the HR business partner who doesn't have to do that administrative work anymore. But what does that how does that translate to employee experience when it when it comes to, you know, either a question getting answered or what's my next career move? So I think the advancement of that is, has a long way to go, but those are there's some interesting applications that I think companies are testing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. And it, it's also speaking of analytics and the data behind it, it's also capturing. It sounds like like with chat uh, bots, it, it, that's capturing unstructured data that you theoretically could be using right. to figure out you know people's mindset or um, you know maybe I'm thinking too far ahead with AI and using unstructured data with AI or machine mm-hmm. learning, but, uh, more AI I guess, but you know just trying mm-hmm. to understand what people's um, mindsets are and what, you know, back to your point about stress and burnout and that sort of thing, or morale, right. you, know, you could probably right. pick up a lot of signals from that sort of mm-hmm. data uh, in the future. But I assume that's getting too far out there. Uh, or, or I don't know, maybe, maybe you've seen technology that can do that right now. I don't know. Well, I, I can't think of one, but I know there's debate of companies and infringing on privacy. So that's one one thing I know country by country, especially in Europe, the privacy laws are are huge. Um, somewhat in the US, but I know Europe has pretty significant privacy laws of what do what do companies have access to, employee information, health data, those kinds of things. Technologies that are tracking moods of employees. Um, Employees on factory floors wearing a wearable device that shows where they've been walking. Are they spending their time in the right part of the floor? Do they have to walk an extra 50 feet to get a tool or a part? Um, and what does that do to productivity? That's you're crossing the line there of, you know, they know too much about how I'm working. They know that I took an eight minute break instead of a five minute break. Um, even tracking what company, what employees music they're listening to. And if they're listening to more, sad music that mean that, that they're depressed or burnt out and if companies have access to that information can they then target the, that particular workforce and say hey we've got a morale issue um that was actually I, I keep referring to this gardener webinar they seem to be hitting on all these um questions that you have but there are companies that are um talking about that type of capability mm-hmm. i don't know what the audience thinks about that but that's you know it's exciting and scary at the same time yeah i'd love to hear to the audience here listening live, um, love to hear what you think. You know, is this something that we should be 
taken more advantage of despite the privacy laws or should we be more concerned about privacy and uh, maybe back off this whole uh, this whole concept of, of big brother or technology right. being able to to track uh, to track morale and mood and all right. that sort of thing on one hand I could see how it would be super beneficial to know the reality of what people are thinking or feeling um, or doing in their jobs not as long as you're not abusing that to micromanage but if you can look at the, right. tr the broader trends and say you know, not just, hey, John's feeling sad. It's, it's not about John. It's about just us as a culture and as an organization. Right. Is the entire organization sad? Then that's another issue. So that's right. I don't know. That's yeah. I can see the pros and cons of that approach. Okay, we're playing you this clip from early 2022 with John Heiliger and Lockheed Martin talking about workforce management analytics. We're going to continue the conversation when we take or when we return from a break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're playing you a clip of John Heiliger talking about workforce management and analytics. Let's jump back to the interview. So you've, you've been in this space for a couple decades now or more, mm -hmm. um, similar to maybe just different parallel paths that we've been on over the last couple decades. But what are some of the biggest changes you've seen um, within HR, workforce management, tech, analytics, all the stuff we're talking about here today? I'll probably go back to your technology question. What what capabilities are being applied to offset historically how work gets done in HR? Um, mentioned a couple of things about how you can can you measure workforce morale? Um, I think analytics has become almost a core competency in HR. I think that's the biggest change. Data literacy, if you will. How do I look at data, interpret it in a way to help my client or myself make a decision. Um, and I think that's showing up everywhere, not just in HR, but in other areas of, of the business. Uh, I love the story of the farmer. Um, I can't remember which book I read. The, the farmer turned data scientist where they automated how their cows get milked. So they put devices on the cows. Cows decide when they get milked. And they go into a stall and it milks them automatically through robotics. And then the farmer actually measures cow productivity on a on an iPad. That's probably an extreme case of when we think of HR or other functions of where where what direction we're going. So I would say data, I would say um, employee empathy and wellness is going to be a huge change of how businesses, CEOs, CHROs think about workforce management. Uh, talked about, do they get less hours? Do they get more pay? Do they get more flexibility? All those things have to be considered. And probably one thing isn't going to work for your entire workforce. It has to be applied strategically. And I would say the best recommendation for any company is you focus on your critical skills first, 
the ones that are actually going to be pivotal to whether you achieve your business strategy or not and differentiate them accordingly. But, but holistically thinking about what areas of your employee and workforce early career, maybe you're, you have elements that might be close to retirement and everything in between might require different things. And uh, so, you know, those are some examples of the biggest changes. And I, I, you know, if you would have asked this question 10 years ago, would we be thinking employee wellness was that important? Probably not. Um, I think social impact, social awareness too, when we think about what happens in the geopolitical space, um, you know, racial challenges, protesting, um, vaccines, pandemics, all those things. Leaders, employees, employers, CEOs have to be aware of all that stuff now. Before, yeah. maybe half of that was important. And when you think about, you know, driving productivity. Yeah, it certainly has, if anything, uh, jumped to the top of the list for a lot of right. organizations and just added mm -hmm. to the complexities of managing a diverse workforce, a global workforce, right. all that stuff. I don't know why, but when you're talking about the um, the cows, you know, the farm with the cows, <laughs> when they decide when they're going to get milked, all I could think about is Animal Farm by George Orwell. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about Big Brother a moment ago. It's like, why is this all uh -huh. Well, um, somehow, but but it, that's an interesting yep. concept, though. The the whole uh, it, and it seems doable or reasonable, though. Like mm -hmm. the balance could decide, the technology could track all that. Um, but right. can't help but think of that book as well. Yeah, one thing I would add to that comment, Eric, is it's funny how companies view themselves. You know, take a Domino's, take a John Deere. They don't view themselves as Domino's didn't view themselves as a pizza company. They view themselves as a technology company who happens yeah. to sell pizza. John Deere is a technology that happens to sell farming equipment because now mm. they apply GPS and, and insights and capability that they hadn't before. Domino's for those in other countries that, you know, they deliver pizza and you can see where the pizza is and, you know, being made, baked and when it's going to be delivered can be done all online. So a lot of companies are thinking that way and and hence the the expectation of the employees and the workforce having to shift you know, to this automation, to this technology and data, you know, kind of going back to the farm, the farmer example. Yeah. Well, as a, as a parent of two um, teenage boys, I know you have kids around the same age, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I appreciate that Domino's has digitized themselves so that it makes life right. easier for us as parents. <laughs> Very true. Um, so we've got a bunch of questions and comments that have just uh, come in here. Um, I'll, I'll share one from from Kyler from Third Stage, our, my co-host and our marketing director. Uh, data is a balance. Trust is often not measurable, which I find that really interesting because um, I was we were talking about whether or not, you know, the data privacy should trump the need to potentially use that data to figure out morale issues or whatever. Um, but then what does that do to trust? And you can't measure that. that. That doesn't show up in your metrics necessarily. Or maybe it does. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts there? <clears throat> I, there's one way to measure trust and it's whether people stay or they leave or, you know, how engaged they are. I think, I think if you don't have psychological safety and that the trust doesn't exist, people won't stay. They'll do just enough to get by. Uh, you, they may not be very engaged in meetings, right? They'll, you know, all those things. It, it is hard to measure. I would agree with Kyla for sure, but you see some lagging indicators as a result. If the trust isn't there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how about, this is an interesting comment from, um, from Sandy on YouTube. And uh, mm -hmm. Sandy says, as long as all levels of management are being tracked to have a fuller 
productivity. <laughs> I think I don't want to assume, but I, I, if I read between the lines of what Sandy, yeah. I think might be saying is, uh, don't just measure or track right. uh, frontline employees. You have to you have to do the same with the management too, and hold everyone accountable. So I guess it's back to that whole: Are we just going to measure like target people? Mm-hmm. Like John seems mm-hmm. like he's sort of unproductive, so I'm going to measure him, but not my peers. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I love it. I think, uh, you know, if, if, if you're a good leader, you won't, you won't mind being measured or tracked or held accountable accordingly. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's companies that, I mean, the whole role of leadership and management is changing or should be, should have changed already on how they spend their time. Uh, I think we, we assume, oh, well, we have 20 people or, you know, we have to have a leader over it. Well, why, you know, there are companies that have these pods that don't have leaders. They, a leader may naturally arise, but they're not, someone's not hired and appointed. They know their purpose. They get their work done accordingly and they co-create as a team. That's, that's uncomfortable and a little dramatic, I would say in many traditional companies like Lockheed Martin, I think it would be hard for us to do that. But I think even how you lead and whether or not you even need a leader, um, as a question companies should be asking themselves. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, here's an interesting uh, question, kind of opening another uh, angle on this. This is from Sai on YouTube. He says a uh, transformation would definitely shift the jobs to different skill sets. What do you think would be the situation of incumbent individuals? So I think we, it kind of gets back to the whole great resignation, attrition, yep. you know, new employees coming on, but then how do you, mm-hmm. how do you manage, um, this, the incumbents, the people that are sort of the legacy employees, the long tenured employees, do you manage them differently? Yeah, yeah. What are some of the unique challenges they face? Yeah, I would say if, if companies, if you can help them make an informed decision. So if the incumbent's job is changing or just holistically the company's direction of what they expect, and maybe that person's in a role that isn't changing, but eventually if they're going to stay, they probably have to reconsider how, what skills training they should they would need to stay and be successful. As long as companies in AT&T did this, where they said, look, this is the direction we're going. These are the jobs that are changing and they're gonna go from A to B. You're gonna, re- you're gonna require these new skills. You might have to have certain level of coding experience. I think it was GE that required all of their employees to learn to code. Those things need to be shared and very transparent to the incumbents, to the employees. So they can then decide, do I wanna be a part of this or not? If my job's gonna be on an iPad and I'm gonna be doing digital manufacturing, I'm not gonna be working and whittling parts by hand, am I gonna sign up for that? And then let them decide, do they wanna stay or to give them an opportunity and enough um, you know, awareness that, that their job's not going away tomorrow, but they can start to think about what's next for them. I think if companies do that well, then not just how you hire, but the folks in your existing workforce um, it might be shocking. It might be uncomfortable at first, but at least they know to make the appropriate decision. So the ones that stay know that they're fully bought in. But again, you have to help them make an informed decision about how their yeah. jobs change. Yeah, absolutely. And that mm-hmm. it gets back to that clarity, transparency. All a lot of the themes you've, you've touched on in the in the discussion mm-hmm. here. Um, right. So, what about? Um, I guess just as uh, well, a couple things here. One is I want I want to share this feedback with you, John, because I think it's uh, it's nice mm-hmm. feedback. Um, thank you, John. Great points and tips. Thank you for addressing my question. Um, and then thank you, Eric, for selflessly making this difference to people like me who are looking for some ways to outperform better in self-improvements. 
So um, thanks for that uh, comment, mm -hmm. uh, Sam, on, on LinkedIn. Um, that's why we do this is to help people um, improve their careers. And, and I learned, I always have a guest on here that I know I'm going to learn from. So that's the way I view it. Is I want to try and learn in front of a live audience, which can be fun and, and awkward at times. Mm -hmm. too. <laughs> um, so I guess it, just as a question to maybe sort of bring this all for, full circle and, and wrap up the conversation, what advice would you give to organizations as they embark on their, I was originally going to ask you digital transformations, but just let's just talk about transformation change in general. What, what advice would you give to organizations, whether they're going through a digital transformation by choice, whether they're being forced into digital transformation because the, the, the economy's changed, the supply chain's a mess and they need to do something, or they just yep. are you know, trying to manage culture differently, their workforce differently. What, what just general advice would you leave people with if you had a, you know, two or three things? That's a great question. <clears throat> I know it's very broad. But. Yeah, forgive the pause. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of noodling on that one. I would say the, the reason for that transformation has to be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, I read about companies, you know, obviously being a part of Lockheed Martin, uh, very clear on why the change. And it, it, yes, it applies a lot to how you do change management, but it's still very important the why. People have to be able to resonate and connect to that. And if they don't, that's okay too. Uh, and it could be, hey, we have no choice. Our customers are demanding it. If we want to stay in business, we got to do it. Create the burning platform. Or you say, we're going to help. You know, it could be a message around, we're going to help your careers. You know, this is going to be a way that you can take these skills and capabilities to another employer. We're going to create tours of duty for you to grow. Um, you're, you might be uncomfortable, but in the end, you'll be better off and you'll be more marketable. Uh, but at the same time, our, our business model, the environment we're in requires us to offer products that can do this. And in order to do that, we've got to do that. So the why is the, the big one. I think uh, being very clear on your investment and benefits of that change I have, you know, probably a lot of us have read about the billions and even trillions of wasted money of companies unsuccessfully transforming uh, because they haven't had a clear strategy, a roadmap of what has to happen or companies have waited so long. They've got to do it all at once uh, because they have no choice uh, and, you know, all again can can drive uh, negative ROIs and those kinds of things. So I think two would be just being very clear on your your expense and ROI benefits. And then I would say uh, the way in which you engage your workforce, the expectations of leaders in this transformational environment, what does that mean to them and how to, what does success look like? Maybe starting with leadership, what does transformational leadership mean? The I, I can't remember, someone on the audience called out the leadership manifesto, I think it was Kyler, um, I think that's a big piece of it is how do you lead in the future? What does the future of work look like? And because if you have the right leaders and it starts at the CEO and you can carry this, this, this capability and help your employees through this journey, uh, I think could be hugely beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's all really good feedback. Those are three really good yeah. tips. And, uh, I like the second one, particularly just the, the benefits and ROI, you know, tracking the cost benefits ROI. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of organizations, especially in cases where they don't have much of a choice because they're being sort of forced by the market into uh, transformation and or the vendors in many cases are, are kind of forcing organizations to, to move to the cloud or whatever the case may be. Um, that's not enough. I mean, that's a good burning platform mm -hmm. to your first point about communicating the purpose. 
So the good news is it creates a burning platform, but if you don't have that clear direction of what it is we want to get out of this on the other side, um, I think that creates a lot right. of, that can create a lot of problems. All right. Thank you, John. Great conversation. And it was good to hear it a second time. And hopefully the audience enjoyed hearing that perhaps for the first time. So really appreciate you being on the show, although it's been several months now. So thank you for that. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll debrief and touch on a few of the, the highlights from that discussion. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. I'm here with Kyler, and uh, we just had John Heiliger on the show talking about workforce management and analytics. What were some of your takeaways now that we've heard that a second time and a few months have passed since we first had that interview, Kyler? Well, it's it's really no coincidence that this is our first one because it's one of my top three favorites. I can't pick a number one favorite, um, but it's it's right up there. Um, just because I, I think it really showcases the value of effectively measuring and analyzing your workforce culture, not only because that's a great practice to do to continue to build the culture that, that you want and be able to retain employees and maximize productivity, but for a digital transformation, coming in and having that ability to already create a data profile or a, you know a, a data portfolio around the readiness of your organization to undergo this very expensive and risk heavy project is absolutely critical and i think it's one of the things that that i see when we work with our clients is just our ability third stage's ability to come in and measure the organization and the surprise that comes from the executive team specifically when they see these workforce management or overall kind of organizational assessment analytics. But having that as a as a, a regular maintenance to the organization's overall health, I think is so critical. And as you said in the opening, often overlooked. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the reasons this is my one of my favorite episodes that we ever did and is really enlightening around the opportunity of best understanding who you are as an organization through hard metrics. Yeah, and the larger of an organization you are and or the more labor intensive you are as an organization, the more movement or the more um, the more impact that this sort of focus on workforce analytics can have. So I think it's a, a super interesting angle that a lot of organizations don't even ever think about. So, um, but if you're a large organization or your labor intensive organization, I think it can absolutely have a huge amount of ROI just to be able to focus on some of these analytics as it relates to workforce management. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's no secret the correlation between just the overall recognition of Lockheed Martin in the marketplace as a top-tier company to work for and seeing kind of the behind-the-scenes view of how much time and intention they put into measuring their overall workforce. I think that there's it's definitely no mystery why that objective is achieved and why they're able to maintain such loyalty within their company in a very competitive marketplace because they really do put that that overall resource into understanding the employee experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, great interview, definitely. And, and stay tuned. This is my favorite time of the year um, when we go through our top interviews from 2020 uh, and, and going back to look at uh, all of the great content we've produced. Um, if you do have ideas of what you'd like to hear in 2023, we always are open and receptive to um, to your feedback and what you want to hear as our audience. So if you do go ahead and drop any of those in the comments throughout the next month as we do our episode reviews, we take those very seriously, aggregate them, and and we'll consider them moving into 2023. Yeah, and we we have yet to do our top 10, uh, year-end top 10 ranking too as well, which will will be forthcoming here um, as we close out 2022. So, uh, so we're giving you a preview of that though, and go, going into your top three here to start, and then we'll, we'll kind of go into the top 10 as well, uh, be, before the end of the year. But, um, yeah, that's great, great, uh, conversation. I enjoyed that one as well. And that's, that's one of those, in my opinion, one of the sleeper interviews that we did early in the year. I think it was probably January that we published that January, February. It was February. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. So, so pretty still early figuring on. it out. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and it feels like, it actually feels like a lot longer than that. So great conversation, and uh, yeah. we appreciated having John on. He'd be someone that'd be good to have on again as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. well, thank you for that Absolutely. that uh, debrief, and thanks for your your choice here for your your top three or one of your top three. I'll be curious to hear what the other two are. You and I haven't discussed it, so I'm curious to hear now. Uh, I'll have to wait oh, till next sure. week, I suppose, to find out what your next one is. Yeah. So, uh, look forward to that yep, for sure. Surprise. <laughs> yep. Good deal. Well, well, thank you for that. Thank you to everyone for joining here today. Appreciate it. And um, look forward to reading your chats and some of your feedback from the, the, the different streams here. And um, be sure to check us out every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And be sure to follow us on social media too. You can follow Kyler and myself individually, as well as Third Stage as a company on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Wherever you're on social media, media you can probably find us there. So be sure to look for us there. And uh, we're posting stuff daily um, out there. So be sure to check it out. So thank you again for joining. Hope you all have a great week. And we will see you all next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. Let me say that again. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 96. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number nine. Man, I mess that up every time so far. Try again. <laughs>